You're listening to the Arc Rhine podcast coming to you from a giant block of marble on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. I'm your host, Marshall Jones. This is Tun Yang. Today we talk to the great sculptor Steve Shaheen. So, a little backstory on Steve and how he relates to us. Uh, I never met him. I'd been in a couple of shows with him. You hear his name around town a lot. He's a really respected uh, sculptor. The sculpture world and the painting world is a little, a little divided. It's rare that in shows you'll overlap so much. But I think I've, I know of two shows I've been in with with Steve and. But I think this is the first time I'd met him properly. So anyway, it was great. It was one of the more technical conversations we've had on the show, which was actually a little bit of a feedback loop. I was learning. I don't. I, I rarely ask questions about painting because I know so much about it. We knew nothing about sculpture, and I was just fascinated with how you actually, you know, carve down a a, a block of marble into something and what the point of no return is on that and and all that sort of thing so yeah and he gets into a little bit about um how different it is from painters because you work as a team um in the marble world. oh yeah that's right yeah more the whole team gets credit for a for a big project he even sort of talked about his 9-11 memorial where there was a lot of people involved in that as well um and yeah, just so you guys know who who we're actually talking to is a really talented, really well-respected sculptor currently working in New York City. And also he lives abroad too, right? Does yeah, he? He, I think he flew back to Italy. So that, that seems to be more his, his career is, is a little more in Italy, but he is very active in the New York scene as well. And Went to the New York Academy, went to – actually, the interesting story with him is he had sort of an 11th hour um, career change. He was on a whole other trajectory and, and made a really ballsy move to become an artist and a stone sculptor as that, which is, you know, you're taking a lot of risk, you know, leaving his financial security, being a teacher and all of that, so – he was sort of ideal for that uh, art grind sort of guest, you know, how does it work type thing. Yeah, that, it was a really great episode. Hope you guys enjoy it. Steve's fascinating. He's had a great career. All right. Thanks for listening, everyone. Bye. Peace. care if any of it's true um, no i don't think I, there's anything uh actually romantic at all about the way i was raised or where i you know i, I was uh, i grew up in exotic um central new jersey nice <laughs> yep um, where, where in new jersey uh on the shore about um i mean not i guess the place of legendary tv shore but uh so about you know the situation was that the situation? Oh no, I, I've never seen. I've never seen it. Like I, but yeah, I I've just... never seen this either. But I actually know what you're talking about, which means that Jersey. Yeah, Shore I think really I've tried like... to steer clear of it. But, uh, <laughs> um, 
but yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's, it's nice. It's about an hour, an hour and a half south of here. Like brick. A little bit north of there. Okay. Um, about twenty minutes north of there. Okay. Yeah. Manasquan. Uh, are you, you're mentioning you're mentioning Marshall, surfing Marshall, locations. Marshall, how do you know all this? <laughs> like, well, why, why are you? I, um, I retouch. I, I painted a mural in a bank in Manasquan, New Jersey, um, and got paid well, a I ridiculous keep, amount of money. When I, I keep figures nice. it's a pirate ship. All right, uh, welcome to Art Grind. Uh, so yes, we actually found welcome. out today that Marshall's first name is um, David. David so Jones. He's actually Davy Jones. Jones and his, you know, uh, Captain Davy Jones. I used to sail my pirate ship on yeah. the shores of Manasquan, New Jersey. <laughs> and welcome, Stephen Shaheen. Welcome, Steve. Uh, I, I promised you pirates, and uh, yeah. you're, you're, yes, you're, you're delivering. <laughs> yeah, so eye patch optional. <laughs> um, actually, well, you know, since no one can really see us, uh, we are all wearing eye patches for the recording <laughs> yes, of the podcast. It's um, also a monkey in the room. <laughs> and, right, and a talking right, parrot. Right. Um, a mute monkey. So, Steve, you were saying you were from New Jersey, the Jersey Shore. Yeah. And then, did you have siblings? Yeah, I'm one of five. Wow. Yep. Oh, so, seven-person family. Uh, big, I guess, but sort of on the tail end of a large Italian family. I think that was sort of the thing in generations past. A Catholic? Uh, yeah. yeah. Yep, 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 yep. Um, so, yeah. And everybody is still sort of local-ish between New York and New Jersey. Okay, that's so, great. Yep. Yeah, I get down there often. Um, sisters, brothers? Three sisters and a brother. Like, oh. the, the brother's oh, bookend, perfect. you know. Uh, wow. They're all, yeah. It's nice growing up with sisters. It is. You learn a lot. Yeah, you learn a lot. You learn a lot, for sure. I'm real grateful to my sister. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Although I think, is your sister older or younger? She's older. I'm the youngest of another big family. I'm the youngest of four. Okay. And she is second in the birth order. Yeah. So. Yeah. I think it's different when you have an older sister. I mean, you learn different things. and. So you have older and younger sisters? No, no, they're all younger than me. They're all young. Are you the oldest? I am, yeah. yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's a big responsibility. Yeah, uh, in some ways. Did, did, did you have, were you the one carrying the shotgun for, you know, probably? No, I wasn't the jealous, like, older brother vetting all the, uh, all the, the boyfriends. Right <laughs> You're like, do whatever you want. Because, because <laughs> I always, secret, oh, I, I always secretly wanted an older brother like that who would, you know, protect like, me protect. from the assholes that I was insistent on dating Wait, off of high that? school. Yeah, yes, I didn't want that because, you know, obviously I wasn't doing a good job protecting myself from the assholes <laughs> at dating high school. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, fortunately I didn't have to. I mean, they, they, you know, the guys that did it were fine, you know. And so did you, did you, when you were a kid, when was the first sort of moment you knew you wanted to be an artist or creative? And <laughs> Well, I can't remember the moment, but my mom does because apparently I ruined a couch that she brought home that was, uh, that wasn't suede, but some other expensive material. I think oh it was like God. the first, yeah, since I was the firstborn, right? It was like the first kind of nice furniture acquisition for this young couple, oh. my, my parents, and, uh... I do remember being orange, uh, and I vaguely remember my pen scrawlings on the back uh, because they never got rid of them. So I probably have an older memory of them, but uh, my mom somehow hid that. Hid that my dad so you drew wasn't. all over the suede leather couch. Yeah, yeah, oh apparently, God. and uh, and I was just drawing things. I mean, like she had she kept the drawings that I did before I can remember, and then you know my earliest memories of drawing was were just. Or just like, you know, I was constantly doodling. I was like the guy in class who was, you know, 
instead of taking notes, doodling or doodling in the margins all the time, and then sort of like the class artist and whatever that meant in terms of, uh, you know, eventually being asked to do things, you know, at, at school if there was like a yearbook cover or whatever. So, um, but I don't think, yeah, so that would be Oh, like, wow, so you did be, a yearbook cover. Oh, I would have nothing, nothing I'd put on my resume. No, that's impressive, though. <laughs> like, you were clearly the creative guy at the school, right? Uh, yeah, that says more about the school. No, man, that's commission work. You were... <laughs> oh, yeah, I, that was a very early commission. Yeah, yeah that's true. I wish I'd gotten paid. <laughs> yeah, but no, actually, yeah, that's, that's a first good training in what commissions can be about. <laughs> yeah, not getting yeah, paid. Underpaid labor. Right? <laughs> that's right. <laughs> From the very beginning. That's the art grind. <laughs> yeah, totally. But it was like, you know, I don't know what your guys' experiences were in, in high school. I guess it's hit or miss in this country. I know, like, when I go to Italy, I talk to people who have gone to a high school. They already have these divisions uh, at that age, like, where there's kind of, what would we call it here, where there's sort of like a scientific high school or... Um, yeah, uh, no, I've, I've talked to, like, European kids about, about that, too, um, where, like, at 16, they have to already basically know what they're doing. Sure. Like, like the, yeah. Public. Um, well, yeah, well, yeah, and, yeah, and actually, classic. The, there's like there's like the liceo, which comes from the Greek lyceum, uh-huh. and they uh, they call it the liceo in Italian. So there's like the liceo scientifico, which is the scientific one. There's the artistic one, and there's the classics, uh, which would sort of be just like, okay, I don't know what I want to do. So sort of for humanities, Greek and Roman, um, and uh, and I think there might be more generic ones too, like the liceo is sort of like a higher level of uh, high school that you have to apply to and whatever. But I, I found it striking that people who felt uh, artistically inclined had that option to go into a school where, like a college here, they were getting a heavier emphasis on the uh-huh. arts while also doing their science and math and whatever. Um, because just to get back to my school, it was, um, it was strong in the humanities and it was definitely funneling a lot of people into strong, like, you know, liberal arts colleges in the United States. But you know, the arts were abysmal. Um, uh-huh. There was like one drawing class with uh, a woman who was very nice but didn't know too much, you know. Yeah. She would pick one of us to just sit there and then we would just have to try to draw the other student and there's no real guidance or whatever. And that was kind of the extent of it. So, you know. That's such a common story I hear about poor art programs in, in the United States and high school and all that. Mm-hmm. It's just like, why is there no emphasis on that? Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. It seems like it's the only thing. I mean, like, right now you have a phone in your pocket that can look up who the 23rd president was or whatever. Why not learn that? Just, like, learn creative stuff rather than box sure. thinking yeah. at school. Yeah. I, 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 I don't know. So I, I actually went to high school where there was a good art program, which I uh, failed disastrously. Um, I mean, I, I might be the one of the only people in the universe to ever fail a high school painting class. <laughs> I mean, like, really? how do you even what? do that then? No, no, no. Um, that's I got fascinating. A, I got a, um, and then I took an AP portfolio class. Uh, say, uh, um, I, I don't know, may, maybe vaguely thinking I'd do it in college or something. In any case, I, I, um, I got a D in my AP portfolio class, and only because, really? um, well, and I only got a D and not an F. Um, so, so partially it was that I was taking That's it. That's striking. Are you, that is are you, striking. Um, are you being serious with us? Yeah, I am being. I, I, I am being serious. Um, you make your living as a painter. 
I, I yeah. do, I do. But um, so you should um, show that in your high school in your face. I tried yeah. to show up at my high school too. You know, like <laughs> like like when that teacher was still there and show her my my little portfolio, you know, portfolio from whatever, like grad school or something, and she was completely unimpressed. Really? <laughs> She's like, I'd fail you again. Yeah, so she, no, no, I mean, so, so honestly, part of so so, so part of part of the problem was that my my two I took it because my two it wasn't because I wanted to do it in college. It was because my two best friends were taking it who were these kind of crazy Russian girls and they would bring alcohol to you know store it in the locker near the art classroom and the, the class would be at nine it was a two-hour class wow, uh, we would core. drink it in the bathroom at nine in the morning <laughs> so by the time that we're actually in class at you know 9 30 wow. we've already had quite a bit of you know uh, wine in us and um <laughs> Um, and, and we weren't very, you know, vig- we, we weren't paying attention. We weren't, they were actually both very talented. I, I was not. Um, so, uh, but by then, Misha, you can cut all this because it's a tangent, but I feel like it's kind of a good story. The final project was um, doing a, a, making a piece of furniture. So this 3D project that was unusable. So it had making to look like. furniture so steep. So it had to be unusable furniture. And uh, the first, uh, the fir- my first attempt to do this, um, I, I didn't want to do it myself because I couldn't make anything 3D that like you know held up for over two seconds. I talked a um, um, a cousin of a friend of mine who was um, I, I, I don't know majoring in, in design into doing this, and he made a table um, that that had a tipping point. You know, it, it, like basically it had a very narrow tipping point, so anytime you put anything on it, it would tip over. So that was unusable furniture. And the teacher was like, you didn't make this yourself, so you're going to fail <laughs> if, if you hand this in. But I'm giving you one more chance. So I went to my sister, who was at that point 13 and in eighth grade, and I asked her to do this. And she made me an unusable mirror, which was a mirror with a huge butt, very realistically. So she, she, my, my sister is a prodigy. <laughs> she could, so it was this huge butt as seen from, from kind of below uh, with little feet sticking out, <laughs> then toilet paper roses kind of um, <laughs> decorating That's it awesome. um, in oil paint, which which for wow. a 13-year-old is, is, is very impressive. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> and, uh, I always liked Maya's butt series. Well, well, this was like a really fleshy, I mean, I mean, you would have been impressed by that butt. Uh, so I brought in the butt, and it was an unusable mirror, and um, she said, uh, you get a D. <laughs> you get a D for the oh, class. Oh, so um, I failed you. Um, uh, it was, I mean... I, I, I mean, but I didn't do it. I couldn't do it for whatever set of reasons. I could not do this project by myself um, or anything else. So, um, Stephen, how, um, what, what were you feeling at that age when, you know, were you sculpting already? Oh, not at all, no. And, in fact, I don't think it even just, you know, you grew up in that environment and you don't, you don't question it, you know. You only know what you were missing later, right? Uh, but, uh, and I, I don't know. I mean, obviously, that kind of, schooling and direction led to other things that I wouldn't have had. You know, I ended up going to uh, a liberal arts college and I majored, you know, I ended up double majoring, uh, but the studio art part of that came secondarily because I had just taken so many art classes as electives. You know, I finally had enough, I had enough, you know, incidentally, I should say, uh, to to double major, but I was a classics major. And um, I guess like my emphasis in the classics and also just studying other things while I was in school voraciously came from having, you know, gone to a more regimented, you know, high school. And I guess that has informed like my, my work now, but I do have to say that I regret, uh, taking it for granted, you know, as, as always like this thing that 
came to me naturally and I thought I could do on the side, you know, because I, I really envy people huh. who started to cultivate it and take it more seriously a little bit, a little bit earlier, maybe not in high school necessarily, but it was always, yeah, something that, um, were your, were your parents supportive of, of your art? They were, okay. yeah, they were. I was uh, telling Dina earlier, like, you know, they, um, definitely supported like my creative pr- pursuits. I think that they also didn't really know how to nurture it other than, which is enough that they let me kind of just do my thing, draw on the couch. Um, and, uh, and then my mom, because, because of the fact that there wasn't like any art at my high school, she actually paid another, uh, art, uh, teacher basically got me like private lessons with a, um, uh, an art teacher at another high school where they mm. did have a, a more thriving program to uh, mentor me during my I, either sophomore or junior year just to prepare some pieces for like a portfolio in case I wanted to apply to like a school with a more rigorous art program, you know, at oh, college. Wow. Oh, that's um, great. It was, yeah, it was great. And actually, uh, that was a great year for experimentation. This this woman really pushed me with a lot of different media and stuff. But, and I, but who knows if it you know, helped with my getting into the school. But the school itself, I went to a college called Holy Cross College, which is up in uh, Worcester, Massachusetts. And oh. it's, it's just like... Worcester. You know, Worcester. You went, you, went to, you went to school in Worcester? I did. It's, uh, I, um, it's actually... Um, so as far as someone who used to hitchhike a lot, Worcester is one of the worst hitchhiking shitholes you could possibly end I, up in. Uh, like, pr- probably I right... I well imagine that. Right, right. <laughs> uh, um, that on Google Maps. Says, <laughs> says, says someone who used to get stuck hitchhiking around Worcester regularly. So, so the only thing worse than Worcester is probably Springfield, where, like, you just, you know, like, your only hope was to get picked up by a cop yeah. and, like, get driven out of Springfield. But, yeah, yeah, Worcester wasn't that great of a place, so actually. This was, a, this was a Catholic school as well? It was Catholic, yeah. It's, uh, um, it's, jeez, uh, like, the, the, the name is escaping. Who are the, the scholars of the Catholic order? I can't, um... Uh, so, by the way, Steve, are you are you oh, are you Francis, religious at all? France? What's that? Are you religious? I, I've known, no, I no, like no. I've known you for was, I've known you for a while and like no, never I'm not. really associated. I'm not. I was with... raised in a Catholic family, but I, yeah, I'm yeah. not. And it wasn't actually. I was like, I mean, I got into like a, a handful of schools that I was deciding between. And none of, none of the other ones and, were And then you went religious. to visit Worcester, and you were like, oh, the ambiance, you know. The... No, you know what it was is uh, I was just so inexperienced. I, I, you know, also, except for some of the, the very close friends that I made at the school, I, I almost regret having gone there, too. I think I would have had a much more eclectic experience at a larger school. I mean, there's only three or 4,000 people max at, at Holy Cross. Um, and it's an excellent, you know, it was an excellent education in terms of the humanities, uh, but oh Jesuits, jeez, it's like kind of oh yeah Jesuits mind hiccup there, but uh, um, but yeah, so it was like you know the re- the religious component was ir- irrelevant to me. It was I, when I visited schools that I had gotten into, uh, I had a really good experience. Like you know, I knew someone who was there already. She hosted me, and uh, I was like, oh, people seem to be kind of real and friendly here. I got another one was William and Mary uh, down in Virginia when I went oh, to. Virginia visit that I remember just someone talking about how you know a lot of people who didn't go to Ivy Leagues didn't get into Ivy Leagues ended up going to William and Mary and that you know you had to like there it was just like more of like a, I, I don't know like I got the impression that people were like working really hard um uh like they had that mentality of like just 
overachieving kind of I'm sorry I'm like trash talking the school that I know nothing about but the it was so like basically a, you didn't want to be a, around a bunch of uh, overachievers no I didn't exactly <laughs> what does that say about me I mean Steve the school is a university I went to UMass Amherst which is a school yeah. of under like epic underachievers uh, was right next door I mean that was a huge school which specialized in like yeah. burning burning lounge furniture <laughs> whenever the Red Sox won or yeah. lost you know, but this is a question that kind of comes up a lot on this podcast because if you, sorry, if you were raised, it seems sort of religious at least, and and kind of a free thinker. Did you have a moment where you departed from that or yeah. left it? Was that was that informative in your work or a big deal or? You know, um, no, because I think that I really matured as an artist a lot later. Uh, I think that. Uh, um, but I think you know questions of faith have like come into the work uh, in, in in general, but not some. And you know I have a couple of things that I've I've been sort of like you know poking fun at at, at religion. But uh, uh, at that age, you know I really started to break away when I was in high school. I remember just like you know starting to think about things and you know some 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 uh, doctrine things that didn't make any sense to me, and then also starting to be more aware of different cultures as a uh, right. Uh, a teacher, you know, we were looking at some of the books on the shelf over there about uh, Native American cultures in this country. And I remember learning at an instrumental uh, teacher, this guy Joe Feely, <clears throat> in high school, who was just a champion, uh, you know, for the kind of clo- relatively close-minded school that I was in. Mm-hmm. He was, you know, a guy who would you know, grown up in the 60s and was just, you know, came from an era that really, you know... Um, I mean, he was just basically like a cool ex-hippie guy, you know? Those guys uh, are really important. They're really important. And and so he, he taught a... Uh, uh, I had him for AP English, but he also taught an elective um, called Myths, Dreams, and Culture, which the first half of the, of the year was spent on um, uh, Native American culture and religion and mythology, and then the second half of the year was Eastern philosophy. Oh, wow. Uh, and, uh, That's great. Yeah, it was, it was super cool. And so, like, I didn't take that class, but a lot of that stuff just sort of, like, seeped into the English class. He would just, like, talk about that stuff a lot. And so, okay. you know, I, I like, when, when I started to realize that, like, you know, uh, how interesting and cool, you know, for me at that age, that Native American cultures were, mm-hmm. and starting to realize that, well, I mean, if Christianity is accurate, that, like, this one way of being is, like, the right way or more evolved or whatever, and, you know, it's like, this this is completely dissonant with what my life experience is right now, and, uh, I mean, that, that, was, that started a schism. That was one of several things that, when I was 17, 16, 17. Yes, yeah, similar, to, similar to me. It felt like, how could how could this be... I was raised Christian as well. Like, yeah. how could this be the only thing? And then you see all these cool people you knew and friends, and it's like, how are we saying, you know, the most extreme, like, this guy's going to hell or whatever? It's just right. you know, like, this doesn't make any sense. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. Like too, too out of touch with how reality was. Sure, it's, very, it's binary, right? Yeah, it's totally. It's binary. You know, this is kind of amazing, actually, because, um, uh, like, so I, yeah, I mean, after we moved to America, I grew up in, like, a very, very liberal part of Massachusetts. I don't think I ever met, I mean, my family's not religious, you know, going back probably several generations. Uh, but also, I don't think I ever really met a religious person, maybe until coming to New York or something. <laughs> but, wow. um, um, but but it's amazing how many of you guys actually did grow up with, like, you know, really strong belief in God. And, and oh. honestly, I'm actually a little bit jealous of it 
because uh-huh. even even if you abandon it, <laughs> yeah. Because I, I I think I think having that gives you something, like like it, it like it's almost like it gives you a safety, um, kind of yeah. As you're growing up, like if you if you do something right, you end up somewhere good, and if you do something wrong, you end up somewhere bad. So there's like a, you know, direct correlation between your actions and you know repercussions for your soul. Um, Unless you're Buddhist. Oh. They say they they say that um, you know whatever last thought you have before you die like you really? mess it up then <laughs> don't fuck it <laughs> up <laughs> overwrites everything <laughs> <laughs> and then like oh, you know, this is, yeah and, and you, you might reincarnate as like a dung beetle or something I don't if know, you have a yeah. dung beetle thought hey, you're then, that's I, only that's only like a few months right dung beetles don't live long you're yeah, back to something you're back, else. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and what do dung beetles think about all the time yeah. <laughs> I mean, for, for the record the, the religions that I kind of envied growing up um, so um, like so if if you don't grow up in a religious place, you know, like like in a place where where kind of that's part of the environment, you just end up a non-believer. Like I'm not a believer. I don't even have that like, like I don't have that hole to fill. Um, but Buddhism was never one of the religions I was jealous of. It's actually Christianity, which is much more kind of. Uh, lucid in its you know reward punishment structuring in a structure oh, yeah. uh, like like, like it, um, says binary it's like, um yeah you know, um yeah yeah and i feel I, like I, I feel like i feel like there's a safety in that it's like you know this is not the real world if you fuck up this world you can still do pretty you know like like pretty well somewhere else you um and that I always seemed really nice <laughs> like, that wasn't a comfort really because i remember being terrified of both outcomes, whether it was heaven or hell, seemed insane to me. But what it did give you was something to really work against. Like as an as a teenager, like Steve, or an adult, like I feel like the gift of it was you had to really process something pretty hardcore as a teenager. Like you're in a way, you know, it seems ridiculous to say, but your soul is on the line for these, for this line of thinking you're pursuing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 The stakes are high, right? Stakes are high. Stakes are high, but it is weird because, and I think, I think one of the reasons there's that kind of, there's that confrontation or that, that reckoning that might not happen in a culture that had a little bit more cohesion between its, you know, belief systems and its life practices and its history and stuff like that. You know, it, 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 I, I believe this is because, you know, this is a, uh, I don't know, we're 6,000 miles away from Israel or whatever. I mean, like, it's like, it's like this transplanted belief system in a, uh, and, and across, you know, 2,000 years in, in a time and a place that, like, we have very little to do with it other than the relationship uh, you know, through, uh, of Western culture, or like how this has sort of been passed down. But I mean, it's like, as a, as a belief system, there's there's a lot of like, you know, uh, a lot, lack of matchup, I guess, with like the the, the life experiences of uh, of uh, someone growing up in uh, twenty or twenty first century America. For sure. But that's yeah. actually something that is still, I mean, so I'm Jewish, I'm not religious. Judaism, the stakes are actually pretty low. Like, yeah. it's like, you, you, yeah, no, if you fuck up, uh, it's not really that, yeah, 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 it's not really that big of a deal. Uh, but, but Judaism is much more concerned in telling you how to live your life. And right now in the 21st century, people really don't like being told, like, what to do in day-to-day life. Like, you know, what, what to eat, what not to eat, you know, like what shoes to wear. Whereas Christianity, 
I feel like is much better at actually telling you how to die and providing comfort for that. And we always need that. Like, <laughs> like, like, like I, I feel like that, that. I feel like that one is still valid. Like dying is still just as scary as it ever was, and Christianity is like like gives you kind of a structure within which to die safely, well, knowing that you'll you know. Mm. Back to you, art, it's like a huge motivator to create is that death fear. Like, you're, you, Dina, you're having a baby. Like, some of that has to be motivated by passing on genes or something, or like. A painting is to pass something on, this fleeting experience to make it live on a little bit. Do you agree, Steve? You know? Yeah, definitely. I think that, I mean, for me, I mean, I don't have children, but uh, that's part of the appeal, right? Uh, especially when you start to really consider that, you know, uh, there's very little chance of you being even a memory a right. hundred years from now or whatever. Do you know what I mean? Absolutely. You know, you know, even like, you know, you take people that you just like, sort of take for granted, right? Like these like, you know, historical icons and, you know, it's just because they're, they're that, you know, like Michelangelo, whatever, 500 years ago, but another 500 years, you know? And then also like, what does that even mean? Right. That uh-huh. uh, we don't know some of the, you know, rulers of different you know, civilizations or tribes or whatever. Like, but the, 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 the probability of complete oblivion, for your existence is like, you know, almost 100%. Almost right? 100% for sure. Yeah. Who do we actually remember? But it reminds me of we your... remember like 80 people that have lived before, you know, the That's last right. 50 years. Or, or, or what's, what's, what's worse, like the idea of, um, you know, not being remembered at all. Or being remembered completely incorrectly, because that's the other likelihood, right? Like, if you sure. are remembered, it's almost a thousand percent that there's like some kind of fall. like the the, the the mythologies around, like just to use someone like 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 seriously trite example, but Michelangelo, but you know, it's just we you know, we have a very um, uh, impoverished understanding of what that human being was like. For you sure, know? yeah, for sure. But you don't have control over either of those things, so who cares? Right. That's, the, that's the bottom line. <laughs> like, yeah, you can try we, as hard as you know, can to we, control but, that but legacy, we, but, we, but we guess actually, what? Right. Yeah. But we keep caring, you know? actually. Like, like we, we do care keep, now, I but mean, like, really, like, you can't do anything about it. I mean, we keep caring about everything, despite the fact that like we're all going to die, and like maybe there's no but point. But like, we care about love, and we care about art, and we care well, yeah. about all this like, kind of useless, but you just can't you know, control, useless stuff. I think people who epitomize a movement, like it's like... The Renaissance, Michelangelo, you know, Cubism, Picasso, they get remembered as an entire movement, and it's it's it's. Yeah. I think even now, it's like whatever we're doing, could that even be remembered? Everything's so fragmented. Like, mm-hmm. there's going to be no. I don't care who you are. There's no more Michelangelos or Picasso that will change the zeitgeist like that today. Mm. It doesn't feel sure. that way. It yeah. won't. There's no way. Or even a musician, there will be no other band that'll have a cultural impact like the Rolling Stones or the sure. Beatles did. Yeah, yeah. It's gonna be some kid playing at a bar with all the talent in the world. No one's gonna know who he yeah. is. Um, That's why we're here. Like, we're gonna find okay, okay, this we're, recording. All right, done. I was we're here. Done here. Yeah. <laughs> but, but we're going to find.
find that kid in the bar like like we like we found Steve and who's <laughs> I, so so I feel like we never did like a proper introduction, uh, but Steve is a really really good sculptor. For those yes. of you who don't know his work, you could try to Google it, but he has apparently just scraped the internet of all of his images. So <laughs> the problem is you can't I, do that. All of the bad shit remains. Yeah, I I, I actually <laughs> don't even know where. Um, so Steve is um, a really really good sculptor whose work you actually have to go <laughs> see in person because he's made sure that we can't look <laughs> it up. <laughs> and Steve, like, so if you were to be judged or immortalized for one piece that you've made so far, which one would it be and why? <laughs> so no, um, no pressure. <laughs> no pressure. <laughs> Just kind of throwing it out there. If, if, if I had my druthers... <laughs> or, 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 or I said, I, I, I was like, I like, use it so deliberately because I n- <laughs> never have a chance to. Uh, well, do you mean like if I, yeah, really, if I had my choice or what, or the one that people most know me for? Yeah, like if you, if you could actually choose control, one. you know, what people would remember you by. I hope that I hope it's not been made yet. There's nothing that I really feel okay. amazing about. I mean, I've been doing a lot of. I mean, I don't know. Like, is 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 what's uh, you know most current for people is the most urgent feeling. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't know. I feel like, you know, I've been, I've, I've been doing a lot of um, work with sort of like bone imagery in the last couple of years. Yeah. And um, I, don't, I don't know. As much as I've been doing it, I'm, I'm not sure I've exhausted that line of inquiry. And I feel like maybe that's something that, uh, you know, if I die tomorrow... Um, might it's going to be the people, next bone people, people, you people might remember yeah, yeah, your right. bones. <laughs> it is interesting talking about permanence because those are made out of marble, correct? Yeah. It's they're 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 like heavy and hard just to feel very hard to destroy, and they're also bones, which has some sort of death anatomical nature. It's, it is like it's like that previous conversation we were just having. You can't get more of an idea that I was here than a big giant marble bone. <laughs> that's funny I, you know no it is it's it, it's funny I, i've had conversations about permanence and impermanence with people when they talk about stone because that's one of the striking characteristics for a lot of people you know there's this apparent longevity or actual longevity but apparent permanence and uh i see it very differently i actually think that um you know, uh, stone like steel or wood or anything else is just going to eventually dissolve back into the earth. Because if you think about uh, the way it formed, actually, that was, I mean, it's just so abstractly long ago for us, but that was ancient. See, you know, do you guys know how marble forms? I don't know. It, it's, it's basically, it's, it's calcium carbonate, which is what our bones are made out of. And it's from the uh, small skeletons of ancient sea life, which have gradually died and fallen to the ocean floor really? and sedimentized. And that, that, that layer of calcium carbonate, that bone, has been uh, pushed down eventually um, in certain places. And in that process of like being pushed down and being wedged up again, eventually, usually in, the, in mountains, uh, it goes through like heat and pressure and the metamorphic process, and it, it, it crystallizes, wow. right? Uh, so, so it is literally bone, and like, it's also yeah. just so your work is like very meta, then in a sense, it, a little bit. I mean, I think it's something I think about a lot with this particular project, and um, it's a very deliberate use of stone in this case. Whereas a lot of earlier stuff when I was training was just sort of like learning how to carve stone, and then like, what do I want to make? What do I want to make as an object? that's also happens to be in stone because that's what's most fluid for me instead of casting in bronze or whatever. But this is a very purposeful project that has to do with 
Yeah, its legacy and, and what it actually is. Also, the fact that it is like terrestrial skeleton. It's mm-hmm. like you know, you know, not to you know, think about like what Native Americans, but like a lot of different cultures around the world think about like the bedrock as being sort of the skeleton of like Mother Earth or the Earth system, right? You know, mm-hmm. and the the waterways is like the the you know uh, circulatory system, uh, and so. Yeah, I, I think about that, and then of course, like just the, it, 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 architecturally speaking, it's a um, uh, a kind of a, a skeleton of, uh, of Western culture when you just sort of see like these columns jutting up from the ground, you know, in the Roman Forum, or just even like you know, mm. just mm. just name name you know your, your your building anywhere, like you know, there's a, a, this uh, this strong relationship there. So yeah, I'm thinking about it in a lot of different ways. And let um, could you explain to us because. You know, not a lot of people, including me, not a lot of people know what the process of actually carving out yeah. um, marble is. And, like, do you use any sort of, like, uh, any sort of technology? Because I've seen some stuff on Facebook uh, video, you know, like, there's this, like, glove thing that you wear and it, like, <laughs> chips away at the marble. It's really cool. Um, do you have one of those? And if not... I would, love also- a I would love a glove. <laughs> I would love a glove that chips away at the marble. It sounds like a VR thing. Like, yeah. it's like little like nanobots on the fingertips yeah. that just kind of curve. It's pretty awesome. I don't... We're all painters, and I think most of the people who come on this podcast are also painters. Actually, you're the first the... sculpture we've had so far. And oh, yeah. cool. Yeah. Awesome. And you honestly, have the honor. That's honestly, great. Honestly, you might be the last sculpture because we might not know oh, any. I'm going to ruin it. So I'll, 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 you know, you're our one chance to actually, you know, for like, yeah. find out. I hope not. Cool. I hope not the last, but. <laughs> so like, you know, like, uh, let's talk a little bit about that. And yeah. also, uh, I know a lot of uh, artists now use uh, assistants. Or, like, they don't do it themselves. So, you know, kind of explain to us why sure. and why not. Yeah. Um, okay. So the first answer to the question is that, you know, stone sculpture is pretty much, it's obviously, it's a reductive process, right? So when uh, we think about traditional form making, you know, uh, in sculpture, it's generally done in one of two ways, either using uh, additive or plastic media like clay mm-hmm. uh, to build something up, uh, or you're starting with, you know, an obdurate material like wood or stone or cast block of can- concrete or whatever and then you're you're you're, you're uh removing material to to f- arrive at a form uh and and just you know as a technique it's been around for you know as long as human beings have been pecking away with one rock at another rock to you know make an axe head or whatever um you know we have figurines that go back 30,000 years um so the the basic process has remained the same and the tools have become more refined so I think the first uh, metal tools were probably copper, uh, mm-hmm. and the uh, Egyptians, I think, were using... I don't know a whole lot about the so history of it. So copper would carve marble? Well, it would carve... The, the, the Egyptians were using uh, a combination of soft stones, like limestones, oh, limestone. which were uh, in, indigenous, uh, and, and then super hard stones, like, um, like granite uh, or porphyry, and... It's still, I think, a mystery. I haven't really read a satisfying uh, explanation for how they were shaping some of those those materials, which even today would be a challenge to yeah, yeah copper super soft. So uh, I'm not really sure exactly because um, eventually then it moved into you know bronze and iron. Uh-huh. Um, even those are are soft though too. You know, right. like bronze like would be soft for approaching a, a material like that. Um, so alloys have you know improved over time. The simplicity of forms, uh, 
you know, is linked to the, um, the, the sort of like simplicity of the, the material, the tools that you have. So a lot of times the earlier, you know, the Egyptian, you know, sculptures are very like kind of monolithic and simple and the early, uh, early Greek kurai, um, both the male and female figures, uh, well, like they were probably only using a point chisel, which is like the first kind of primary chisel. Just imagine like a stick of metal that's sharpened into a point, right? Right. And uh, it's a pretty, um, pretty blunt tool. It just kind of wants to fracture off the stone almost arbitrarily. I mean, you can guide it somewhat, but huh. you know, that's the only chisel that could kind of hold up. And surely, after just a little bit of use, it started to bend and to blunt, and then it had to be resharpened and then reforged. You know, when it lost its its temper. And so work was probably much more, um, uh, it was much slower. Uh, you probably had like, like a pile of those chisels next to you, you know, and then you'd, you'd put one down when it was dull and pick up another one. Huh. And then eventually as alloys improved and metals got you know, hardened, they could make flat chisels. They could make ones with like a series of little teeth that we call tooth chisels. Mm-hmm. And then you, you gradually start to see a greater sophistication of, 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 of forms, right? And, uh, you know, there's always a question, I think art historians like debate, like whether it's first like the ideas that drive the tool making, like someone wants to make a highly rendered figure. And so like, what do I need to make tool wise to represent that? But I think that it's a little bit of uh, a conterminous sort of like evolution of like ideas together with tool. Like, you know, the more sophisticated tools that you develop, then you're like, oh, actually, maybe I'll try to do this with it. Right. You uh-huh. know, maybe I could carve a leaf with this tool. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Whereas and, previously uh, that I, was unthought of. When I, when I think of sculpting as a painter, I just think of pure terror. Like it seems looking at a block of marble that must be fairly expensive and knowing, I mean, is it like one shot? You have one shot at making this? No, no, okay. it's, it's actually, and it, the people always like ask me that too. Like, well, wait a minute, are you going to, you ever afraid you're going to like break a nose or, you know, something? Yeah. But the thing is when you arrive at that point where you're working on details, um, like that, you're, you're, you're off of, um, you know, like any kind of serious percussion and all that stuff happens in the beginning where you're kind of roughing something out and it's all scaled, right? It's very methodological and uh, sequential, you know, uh-huh. you use certain tools in the beginning for the roughing and then you move on to like less aggressive tools and, you know, increasingly, uh, less aggressive tools until you're finally, you know, off of percussion and into abrasion, you know, for arriving at the, the final, the final forms are just very, delicate kind of like tapping there's always a risk there of you know breaking something but like like you but like you were saying it's reductive so you're taking material off and i feel i don't know i feel like when i'm painting i can fuck up a a nose and paint it back and paint it fuck it up it's just like back and forth the stakes are are so low it doesn't really matter if you have a bad painting day it's like i'll get it next tomorrow especially for oil painters when i was in burma we can do anything there's a strip in mandalay was it mandalay uh i think so anyways um there's this whole street full of uh these like guys uh, carving out uh, Buddha statues yeah. out of marble and you know like they're using all sorts of like crazy tools and like y- you can smell the dust yeah and the, the taxi driver was telling me that uh, most of these kids you know they, they just get like lung cancer from it it must not be marble yeah I don't, I don't think you would from or, marble was it, it, could, not? it could be uh, well there's several asbestos things that could be that would be bad for you. Well, yeah, I mean, soapstone has uh, has has asbestos in it. Does it really? I think some soapstones do. Whoa. I know that granite. I don't think they would have been carving granite by hand like that. But granite, uh, 
has silica in it and mm. uh, people develop silicosis. In fact, in the Vermont uh, granite quarries back in the uh, early, uh, the, the late, uh, late 19th and early 20th centuries, um, these um, uh, expert quarrymen who were brought over from Italy to, to work, you know, these new quarries in, in Vermont uh, didn't have um, any kind of like breathing protection and no one really understood you know the uh, the risks involved, and when they finally these guys were like dying in their thirties and stuff, you know, like they would wow. get acute exposure to the silica dust. You know, it was like they didn't know if they were, they had TB. They were kept away from their families and stuff like that. Wow. It, it was a totally preventable thing until they they figured it out. Wow! Yeah. And your hands don't seem to be damaged, so how... you can't see it, but uh, they are. <laughs> they are <laughs> they actually. Are. <laughs> yeah, they. Uh, I have a. Um, uh, I mean, this, yeah, they're not visibly like they're not like, all knotted up, but um, uh, I have something called uh, hand arm vibration syndrome, which comes from using. I didn't answer your question directly, which is that we do use a lot of power tools today. Oh, okay. uh, you know, the original question was like, what do we use? And we yeah. use a lot of the same, a lot of the same tools. We and and it's either per- percussion or abrasion, right? Always. Right. Uh, even if you're using a diamond saw, like a saw blade, that is, uh, it's a disc that's coated with granules of artificial diamond that's just very quickly abrading in a very thin area, wow. right? It's not actually cutting the stone. So um, uh, all to say that the sacrifice, so that, that speeds things up. It's neutral. Like it, it, it just, it just, you know, and we have pneumatic hammers. So it's like a little mini jack hammer. There's a piston inside of it. And that supplants your hammering arm, you know, in some cases you still hammer right. uh, for certain things, but, um, but it'll just speed up the rate at which you, create or fuck something up right mm. uh and uh the cost for that speed is uh there's a couple costs uh well number one there's a few number one is like an additional layer of mediation you know between you and and the piece it's a little it's a little bit farther right a little less sens- sensitivity a lot less sensitivity i should say um and then uh number two uh a cost is that you uh um um you know subject the peace and yourself to a lot more abuse. Uh, and, um, the, uh, the thing that happens is that I guess, you know, vibration apparently is not good for your nervous system. Um, and I guess, you know, people who drive like trucks over long distances sometimes Mm -hmm. have to wear anti-vibration gloves or I found this all, all all, like later after I developed the problem, I was like, Oh, it's a thing. Uh, it's good to find that out after, (laughs) after eight years of of work, you know, I don't know how many thousands of hours. I definitely was way past the 10,000 hour work. I, uh, I, I was taking a shower in Italy, um, after a few months of very, very like intense work on some big, you know, commissions. And I remember I was showering and I looked down at my hands and they were like, the fingers were like blanched, right? They were like, like, disgustingly white like you know if you like lost your circulation and it was just weird you know and i uh and what was startling was that because it was a hot shower was that the rest of my you know flesh was sort of like pink from the the heat Mm -hmm. and it was just the fingers that hold the chisel on my left hand wow and then just the fingers that straddle the pneumatic hammer on my right hand you weren't afraid that they were going to like fall off well, I didn't know. What I, was I'm a hypochondriac, so that would have been my well, reaction. I would have been like, like, I'm, I'm losing them. I'm losing them. I mean, it was it was jarring, and it was also immediately kind of apparent, you know, like what this must be. And so I went and I talked to one of the old carvers who ran the studio where I work in Carrara, Luigi Corsinini. Uh, he's in his 70s now. He's a phenomenal artisan, and 
I said, Luigi, I said, is there something that happens like, you know, with your fingers where they turn white? And he's like, oh yeah, el bianco di... Like he's like, there was a term for it. And I said, how... No one ever told me that. What? You know, it's just like, oh yeah, that's how some people get that. You know, just like so nonchalant. Oh, and right. uh, and since then, I've looked it up. Of course, it's a known about thing. Like I guess lumberjacks, you know, people who are like, you know, or, or wow. people who are grinding metal all day, like the, you know, the hulls of boats, sanding that shit. And, just from uh, the, the vibration. It's from the constant vibration from power tools, right? And uh, and so what it does is it damages the nerves, and the nerves then misfire, and usually. It happens in the beginning, and then it can become more chronic. I think I've arrested it at this point where if your body temperature drops, um, the, the, the capillaries uh, or the nerves that control the capillaries, instead of like letting them dilate and getting the blood out there, they constrict. Huh. And so it's very similar to uh, a syndrome called Raynaud's. I, yes, I know that. Yeah, where someone can grab a you know cold can of like soda or whatever, and then like you know the, the fingertips will start to. Actually, when you were talking yeah. about the whiteness, I was thinking that. The, yeah. The uh, so, so by the way, I don't know about um, are you guys, Tom Marshall, but like like we painters are real wimps. I mean, that, like like <laughs> his fingers, yeah, no his, doubt. Finger, his fingers are all there falling no. off from like from him like power you tools. You guys breathe breathe you solvents. Know, I, we yeah, breathe solvents and lead. Sometimes. Um, I mean, you know, sometimes yeah, we, like okay, like we eat a little cadmium. You coffee know. and you drink some turpentine. Oh, man. <laughs> I had a teacher who did that. Mark Shatov in Atlanta said that you know that silicoil thing that like yeah. the painters use. Yep. It's like to clean your brushes, and it just has sludge at the yeah, bottom. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Says he grabbed that no. and took a big swig out of it, thinking it was coffee. And he says the image is so evocative. Of me, he said it was just instant projectile vomiting. Like there wasn't a second. It was just like, <laughs> yeah. Body says no. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No. That's. Uh... Yeah, it's it's it is a lot. Of, I mean, you know, I, I don't know about the wimpiness of painters. I think that that's debatable. But you know, your Russian sailor um, guy should have done that. He should have just been carrying a, that can of turpentine. I eat lead for breakfast. I mean, they basically drink nine. that. So. <laughs> <laughs> So, so um, I, I guess because it is kind of like my one chance to ask a real sculptor questions. So in order to prepare for this, I, I, I went to the Met today to the sculpture hall. No, I, I took my <laughs> I, I took my toddler to the sculpture hall because I need something. I need like somewhere Carpo. where he can roam. Um, but um, the, um, and uh, before we were politely asked to leave the sculpture hall because he's a nightmare. Uh, I saw <laughs> you got kicked out. I, it happens every time I go there. Uh, like like I feel like this time it was like fifteen minutes rather than like. Five, like you're gonna break the, these wow. sculptures? Uh, no, no. He 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 tries to like climb into the fountain there to get the money oh. out. Oh, uh, because, okay. So, um, but but, but he, before that happened, um, somehow uh, I'm disappointed in him. Now he's just going for money. It's <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, actually more. It's more romantic than that. Actually, I told him if he throw money in there, it's like a, like a long, you know, you can make a wish. Uh, so he throws money in there. Oh, that's wish, good. Okay. He, takes like it all out to make more wishes. wishes. Oh, that's cute. I'm not sure he knows what a wish is, by the way. But um, <laughs> uh, in any case, before being asked to leave the sculpture hall at the Met for probably like the tenth time this year, um, I saw like since I know most of the sculptures there, like like you know they don't have much of a rotation going, but they put these two new things in that are like one of the most amazing things I've ever seen. They were done in the first century BC, right? And it's these two statues of um, a girl chasing pigeons. 
Oh, and like, wow. um, huh. and they are so good and so kind of alive, like the girl and the pigeon. Mm. Um, and you can see in one of them she looks kind of scared, and the other one she's kind of she, she's excited. But like this is thousands of years ago, and like I'm not wow. sure that many people could do that now. Mm. Like, and oh. the anatomy's all like actually right. Mm. Like, whereas you know, like a few hundred years later, you look at like you know anatomy of Gothic sculptures, and they're all you know like mm. like emaciated mm. and basically have no bones or no you know like like no right, no right. muscles. Like like they, they were obviously done from life. Like, there's no way that that wasn't done from life. And, like, I don't know, I feel like Michelangelo would have, like, checked it out and would have been thrilled. But, um, so what happened to make us kind of, like, lose that? Because Mm. there's definitely, you know, like, some amount of years where, you know, this is done first century BC. A few hundred years later in Europe, you would not be able to find someone sculpting like that, I don't think. Well, sure. Well, I mean, that was, like, you know, the whole thing with the... uh... The, those dark ages, the dark ages <laughs> yeah. you know that. yeah and I mean yeah I mean, there's definitely a, a loss of that of that and a lot of other knowledge um, that was cultivated in the Greek and Roman uh, cultures right and uh, the thing is though that's in, I think what's interesting about it is that the craft of stone sculpture continued so it was just a matter of kind of reawakening or rediscovering um, certain things just in terms of you know uh, that kind of uh, representation of the body being picked up again during the Renaissance it was more just that understanding of anatomy right you know uh, sort of being re- re- reinvestigated or rediscovered and cultivated but um, but uh, yeah I, I find it more worrisome when there's uh, a coupled lack of sort of uh, that kind of study of, you know, the research of what you call the body or just sort of understanding how to represent something uh, with a a lack of uh, actual craft, right? Um, Because then that's like a different set of problems. I think that the craft thing is... I guess what got me about those is they they were very much alive and they didn't seem to be done for any reason other than kind of love of... I don't even like, like who does that? Who like a little girl like crawling after pigeons or like, yeah. like yeah. you know trying to catch? Like, it's like, a pretty like, pretty unique moment to capture in sculpture for sure. Sure, that's curious. I mean, I don't know the piece, and I'm it's, I'm, I'm kind of wondering. Like, you know, uh, um, as you're approaching that fountain, the wishing fountain yeah, yeah, yeah. that you know I'm no longer allowed to go near. Don't steal <laughs> it. Don't Apparently, steal the money. Um, yeah, um, it's it's like at, like if you're walking from the main, you know, like the main galleries, like the yeah. Uh, in any case, it was wonderful. Um, so we, we also kind of like left. I feel like there's there's like like we we left you in high school uh, as your or, or <laughs> early college as you're just taking your first art classes yeah. and and you know majoring in classics. How did it go from that to you know Steve Shaheen the sculptor? The sculptor, okay. Let's try to. Um, I had no idea you majored in classics, but... by the way. Like. Oh um, yeah, yeah. I ended up doing that. I think I just felt like that. You know, well, if I, I'm going to go to uh, this kind of a school. Um, you know, maybe I should like learn, get a solid foundation in the, you know, the history of Western thought. Uh, even I mean, I disagree with a lot of it, but you know, you kind of know where you come from. I mean, most of us right now we're speaking what seventy-ish percent, you know, Greek and Latin. Um, so, what, what were you going? You know, what was kind of the plan for that? Like, you're, you know, you're, you're majoring in Western thought. Um, Marshall just brought out more moonshine. Um, Excellent. To, that's to, that's, to, that's, you that's know. great for me. Uh, <laughs> um, 
But um, but were, were you going to be an academic? Were you going to be a writer? Like, what, what were you going to do? Was you, were, were you going to go to law school, which is no. what a lot of people with a classics degree yeah. end up doing? The... No, I think I, I think I, uh, uh, you know, I started off as a um, biology major in school. I was fascinated with the natural world, and I thought that maybe I could, you know, sort of be like a Jane Goodall type um, uh, of uh, you know naturalist, which I, I don't know if that even exists anymore. But the, the biology department was more geared towards pre-med at the uh at, at holy cross and uh and so i kind of quickly shift ge- shifted gears i went into philosophy as a major and then um but that was sort of a placeholder i just uh and then like what kind of like it was an easy step from that into uh into classics but at that point i really wasn't i really wasn't sure uh, i was kind of like feeling my way feeling my way through that that that, that point of my life i was doing the kept on doing art classes because that interested me. I was doing photography at the school. Um, I did take a sculpture class. It was more conceptual. Um, I hacked away. I mean, my, my first um, <laughs> my first attempt at stone was really not promising. I think I started a limestone block and like gave up after a week. It was just like too slow and frustrating. And, you know, it also didn't fit within the sort of college, the college-y uh, uh, assignment. You know, usually you have something that's like, do the next week or two weeks from now and it was just such a slow a slow thing but i didn't take i didn't take to it at all um but but eventually i started playing music uh my sophomore year i'm a bassist and uh and from that point forward i was really interested in uh pursuing that after school and in fact i was you know i was in a band and you know, we just we were like touring a little bit in the Northeast and made an album. What, what kind of music? Oh, it was like just alternative rock. I mean, just what, sort of what, like what mid nineties post REM kind of like you know. Can uh, we find you on Spotify? No, no. <laughs> we're actually they, they just uh, coincidentally. Uh, I'm still very close with that that group of guys. We live in different cities now, but we're we're working on a second recording. Really? Yeah. Oh, that's nice. awesome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Who, who were the bands you were listening to then? As in, oh, like, back Nirvana? then. Uh, yeah, totally. I mean, like, you know, when I first, you know... Uh, you would have to have no heart growing up at that time if you didn't like Nirvana. I mean, the... Yeah, see, and, I and maybe, maybe I no soul. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, no, they, they were, it was exploding. I mean, like, you know, you know grunge had, had, you know, sort of, like, was major. And then we were, you know, listening to, like, some smaller bands that you might have never have heard of, but, like, were kind of like prominent maybe on the college scene or like the indie scene like Buffalo Tom I don't know dude. I know Buffalo Tom do you sure yeah yeah shit that's great yeah <laughs> um, and a whole like list of like you know just a whole bunch of groups like sort of of that ilk and so yeah I mean it was just sort of like guitar driven stuff and um, started off doing like covers and some originals and then quickly kind of shifted the balance shifted to a lot of originals and um um, Wasn't that time in Massachusetts there would have been like Dinosaur Jr. Yep. and stuff yeah, around yeah, yeah. for sure. sure? Right, and they heavily influenced Buffalo Tom. You know, uh-huh. like, like, a lot of times Buffalo Tom, unfortunately, was like sort of in the shadow of yeah, Dinosaur yeah. Jr. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, yeah, Boston was like an actually okay place for music at, at that time. The Pixies uh, weren't around at that point, though, right? Uh, yeah, they were still. The I think so. UMass, they have a song called UMass. I know, and the, well, they have that song called "Where's My Mind," which uh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. UMass, you know, which, which everyone feels. It's <laughs> a great song. And the uh, Mighty Bostons, you know, oh yeah, Bostons? yeah, Actually, sure. Aren't the young Dubliners from Boston too? Like the like they're the not Dubliners. Irish. You yeah, know the yeah, Dubliners? Uh, I mean, we we had to have gotten into the like like my, that guy could hardly stand Irish. up straight on stage. I mean, uh, oh, oh, they're so good. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> I know their cover of uh, Johnny Harling You is still, still, still probably my favorite one out of every single person that has sung that song. That's cool. Um, yeah, yeah. But yeah, I, you know, I only recently found, I only recently found out that they're not actually Wait, did you Irish. Say Massey Star like, was from Boston. Boston? No, no, no. But I'm just think, thinking of like oh, the kind of, of like bands. you know groups that were like you know kind of yeah big at that time. So okay, so you're you're a bassist. Yeah. You're you know you're you're in a band. Then um, what then what happens? In a band. So yeah, I kind of got diverted. I, mean, I was just I was still doing the art stuff just because I, I loved I loved doing that. Um, you know, I had taken all these other classes and ended up. I mean, my my graduate thesis, I was in this like honors program thing. I don't know, I forget what they called it, but I was, I ended up doing this, uh, thesis on, um, it wasn't a graduate school thesis, a graduating sort of thesis was, uh, on the use of, uh, uh, I, I did, it was sort of fine arts related. It was an, an, an exhibit of work that was exploring the relationship of, um, representations of, um, different cultures, uh, specifically like it, it came out of like, uh, representations of like Native Americans and popular culture, right? Mm. So like Land of Lakes Butter, Red Man Chewing Tobacco, um, the Cleveland oh, Indians, wow. uh-huh. um, and you know Washington Redskins and stuff like that, and kind of looking at at all the you know weird um, the weirdnesses about that, you know the uh, obviously like offensive nature of it, but it's sort of exploring why that's a, a phenomenon that can exist for that you know cultural group, and you couldn't have sort of like you know black representations or I mean th- those things do exist and have existed in the past but they're kind of like frowned upon you know now actually like 20 years later or however long it's been like that stuff is going away too in like Native American mascots you know yeah, yeah. for sure yeah that was like a did, big thing about that recently right well the yeah, Reds Cleveland yeah. Indians yeah, yeah. Did, did you ever read uh, it's, it was Leonard Cullen's second book? Um, so before he started singing, he was he was a writer. He I wrote, know. He wrote two books. I one of one of them, I think you'd really. It's called Beautiful Losers, and oh, it's cool. like one of I I, I mean it's it's um, it's about Native American culture amongst other things, but it's also really I mean sexual, fucked up, depressing, um, and maybe mentions the Holocaust. It's Leonard Cohen, but because he doesn't have kind of like a pretty guitar, you realize like how insane and beautiful what's going on in his head actually is. You know, he would um, back, he would flog himself in the studio. What? Like he would whip himself Literally? in recording sessions. I mean, I'm, yeah. I'm also not particularly surprised. So, no, it was this weird what thing. purpose? Like, um, to feel more. I mean, I think yes. that's like a lot of what artists. I mean, that's a big topic. It's just like a lot for him to feel alive. I, you know, re- there's a strong precedence in religion for that, and just and, sort and, of like, and he's really like, like there's whatever he else uh-huh. he is, like he is religious. Like it's hard to tell what religion, but like, mm-hmm. like wow. he's a believer. Uh, That's interesting. But 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 I feel like that book, in like yeah. very a very kind of metaphysical, poetic way, talks about maybe the same thing that you're. Um, cool. Uh, no, I'd like to. I'd like to read that. Um, I'll throw it down after after this, uh, but uh, yeah. Anyway, so anyway, fast forward. I just kind of well, came out of school, played uh, music for a while, and then there were a couple of years where I was just sort of uh, the band dissolved, and I was working teaching Latin at my old high school back in New Jersey. Back in Jersey. And uh, uh, and then I just between the two years where I taught, I uh, I went to Europe for the first time. Mm. I had a um, uh, a, 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 like a buddy where we went backpacking and went through Italy and that was just like you know uh, 
an explosion in my my being. I just like I have to. I got to live over here at some point. Did you see like the Bernini sculptures and stuff? I didn't. You know, I didn't. And again, I hadn't. Remember, I hadn't like done really any sculpture of consequence. I had like taken a couple of classes where it was like mixed media and stuff. But it was just more the. There were a lot of things like Italy. You know, hit me like a, like a tidal wave because it was all this kind of nostalgia from having grown up in an Italian American family, mm-hmm. uh, coming like all, you know, just the, the, the foods, everything was so familiar. Even the way, even hearing Italian spoken reminded me of the way that my old, you know, aunts and uncles, you know, had spoken just like the cadence of their English, you know, or like the little intercalations of these like, you know, Italian words and stuff. And, uh, and then the food and everything was just like intoxicating to me. Mm. And, uh, and then seeing all the artwork, it was just, absolutely like mind frying and uh and i love the sound of the language and i, I just you know i i, I it's like I, I you know i'm 25 and uh, or 24 at the time and i was like i i, I want to do this you know before life gets too uh complicated to to, to go back here i'm single i want so I, I went back to the school I, I almost stayed there i was looking into programs where i could teach english and then i um uh i went back put in another year it <laughs> sounds like i was in prison but, <laughs> yeah. but, but uh, I put in <laughs> te- yeah teaching 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 Latin to you know to high school students wow. could be but um, but yeah and then I just you know I also didn't want to leave the school in the lurch because it's a tall order finding a, uh, a Latin, Latin teacher in the middle of the summer to, to start up and so uh, and it probably was a good choice because I, I saved up some more money uh-huh. and then I then I went better prepared you know rather than just kind of like doing like the romantic expat thing and just like you know ripping up my return ticket or something so <laughs> I, I went back there and then uh I, I it took me a few months to sort of I, when i went back to italy i was not really i didn't have like an aim to you know go learn sculpture or whatever but i did want to make i knew that i didn't want to teach latin for the rest of my life or the bulk of my life and i didn't want art to be like a hobby you know, I wanted it to be in the forefront. And so I didn't know what, it, it, you know, Italy had in store for me regarding, like, you know, my my journey as an artist. But I knew that I wanted to live there and I was just open to discovering what happened. And so I went over there and, like, the first, uh, it, the first you know, few months I was just learning Italian and working, teaching English, you know, part-time to help fund my existence. Came back for the next three months um, and uh, it was during that time that I had a, just a completely you know, serendipitous uh, moment where I was sitting um, having a dinner with um, a, a Mexican woman who was a friend of mine, also expat learning Italian, and her friend who was a painting restorer uh, from Spain. Mm-hmm. And we're sitting and talking, and uh, I said, you know, I'm fascinated by, I've seen, I see all this stone sculpture here in Siena where I was living. And... Uh, I'm just wondering if that's made anymore. And I'm wondering if I could just, if there is someone who sculpts stone, could I maybe apprentice, like just sweep the floor and go and learn something, you know? Huh. Uh, and Old school. Yeah. I just, I was curious. I mean, it's like, it's so like, where would you even start to research that? Right. I mean, you know, probably Siena. I mean, that's, <laughs> well, like, apparently yes. I mean, yeah. Where else could you be having that conversation? And then the woman turns to you and says, actually a friend of mine is taking a sculpture course. And, uh, I was like, okay. So her friend Michele, an Italian guy, um, from a town called Viterbo was up in Siena to take this 
vocational, what turned out to be a vocational training program that was being run sort of like on an ad hoc basis. It would almost be like if there were a dearth of, uh, of uh, welders in New York and some commission got together and said, well, we better like, run a two-year program to get some people up to speed because there's a lot of shit that needs to be welded. Uh, you know, there, someone had made the case that, 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 that the old stone carvers were dying out and that they needed to train some people, you know, to be able to go and restore the cathedrals and to do other important, you know, work around the area. So it wasn't for, like, would-be Michelangelo's. It was just to kind of get people practically trained, you know, so they could be out, out working and, you know, re- re- replenish, you know, the, the, the old masters who were aging out. So... Uh, so yeah, so I, I, I somehow got into this program uh, with seven or eight Italians and this American guy, um, and they told me, they said, well, well you, can, you can do this if you want, and it's free, but it's a commitment. It's going to be two years. And, uh, wow. and I wasn't ready for that news because I had just been, you know, kind of three months at a time. But so like the idea of actually settling in over there uh, was exciting, but also a little bit terrifying, you know, uh-huh. uh, and... Uh, but I did it, and wow, uh, there nice. I have to give credit to my mom because I remember being on a you know a payphone with her with these little scra- at the time little scratch off like cards where you got like ten dollars. Yeah, yeah, I remember those <laughs> credit, you know. And I said to her, I was like, I, you know, I don't know if I should do it. She's like, do it, you know. She's really? like, this is sweet. She's oh, like, that's yeah, that's I know this is God's calling for you, and whatever. Oh. Like, you know, it was great. I, I, honestly, like it just it just totally changed the trajectory of my life. Um, wow. So I ended up doing it. Um, and that's a whole other story, but yeah, you know, after, after that, uh, wasn't quite, it ended up being like, yeah, it was about two years. It was like from September of 2000 to like Christmas time of 2002, like was that a year and a half. Wow. I don't know. Yeah. Whatever it is, whatever it is. But, uh, but yeah, so, like, um, uh, how, no, sorry, how? Christmas time of 2001. So it was like a year and a half. Okay. A year and change or whatever. But it was all based in hours. Like, there were, I don't know how many thousands of hours of practicum, and then there was a certain number of hours of uh, the history of what, this, like, leave it to Italy, right? This probably wouldn't happen in New York, right? Like, it would just be all, it would be all welding. Yeah, we had, but because it's Italy, we had, uh, you know, a, a certain number of hours of practicum. Every morning we'd go to the Stone Studio from 8 to uh, noon or 1. It would just be carving. Then there'd be a lunch break. And then you'd have to go from three to six uh, and uh, either do, I think, two days a week. It, it was three to six uh, art history, the history of Western sculpture specifically. Wow. With a, a very serious scholar that I'm good friends with to this day, uh, Pier Giacomo Petrioli. He has two PhDs, one in art history, one in the history of art, art criticism. Wow. Uh, and, uh, and he would just talk to us, you know, from, you know, antiquity to... Uh, to modernity uh, about about sculpture and um, and then we had geology uh, which unfortunately I didn't know enough time to probably appreciate but it was also there were like two guys who would regularly sleep through that and um, <laughs> uh, yeah and then uh, and then then we had like other like uh, eventually there were other you know, um, sort of subjects that were introduced like. Um, what we what would we call it like mechanical drawing like draftsmanship like sort of architectural drawing okay. we'll do orthogonal projection and that kind of thing and there was some life drawing and, and like you know plaster casting and that kind of stuff but uh, so cool and you just happened upon this program yeah. talking to some that is free the craziest too. thing I've ever yeah. and like I'm interested in the logistics or like once you made that decision to move to Italy for two years as an American like what are the steps? Like, what do you have to do? Yeah, so... Uh, he's 25, I, so I bet the steps are just, like, do it. Uh, <laughs> no, 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 no. Like, I'm yeah. saying, like, you know, passport, visas. Like, what did you have to do? Like, because I'm actually interested. Mm. 
No, yeah. Totally and, I want to go there. there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> does, that, does, that, does, that pro, does that program still exist? Because yeah. Well, it actually, they, they did continue it uh, a couple of years uh, for a couple of sessions, I think, one or two after, after mine, or maybe just one more. Mm. And uh, a good friend of mine, uh, a Scottish uh, sculptor named Alistair Thompson, Ended up doing it at my suggestion, and like he now too is like he's he's a professional marble carver. <laughs> like, you know, he's a I feel really good sculptor. Like he's like one. He's of really the good. Very, you very also taught my friend uh, Joshua Henderson. So, yeah, yeah, Josh. Yeah. Josh got a taste of Italy as well. But yeah, so I mean, you know, if you don't want to just kind of like you know go over and tear up the return ticket, you can go and uh, you know what was advised to me at the time. I don't know how things work nowadays with travel, but it was relatively easy to get a student visa if you enrolled in an official program. So I enrolled in the, uh, uh. the University of Siena uh, for, the, for foreigners um, mm-hmm. to, to study Italian. And uh, as long as you had that uh, document, then you could go to the Questuter, which is the local municipal police station, and get like a, what they call a, a permit of stay. Uh, mm-hmm. and, uh, and then you would have, I think, a, a renewable 12-month student visa and then every every few months you'd have to go and like renew your your stay permit, um, and uh, uh, yeah, so that that was like the base sort of like legality part right. of this. Yeah, and then you just have to kind of figure out the rest. Very, it, it was like the more I think back on it now, aside from the very very good and weird fortune of having that conversation and finding this program, it also I don't know if I would have been able to even with all that in place. I don't know if I could have done that again today because of the. Uh, the euro and how much more expensive it is over there, mm. um, especially in a town like Siena. But at that time, you could find housing. It was still the lira. It was like right yeah. before things shifted uh, around the year 2000. And, um, you know, I remember I was staying somewhere for like $200 a month. Wow. Uh, yeah. So wow. things changed. Definitely. And then you came back. I just struck by the dates. Like you came back to New Jersey, presumably. December 2001. Yeah. That would have been pretty intense, right? It was, yeah. I mean, I was over, I was, you know, I was over there uh, on 9-11 and, you know, September. It was like, that, that was a whole other weird story. A friend of mine from New Jersey was visiting me that week and, uh, wow. and you know, we just came out of the, the, the I took him to see the uh, cathedral in Siena and we were like looking at all this incredible stuff. We came out and this guy comes running across the plaza who knew me. Uh, he, he was another guy taking the stone carving class. He's, he was a mason getting his degree in the stone ornamentation so that he could do work on cathedrals and things like that. So he was like running across the plaza and he's like talking to me in you know, Italian and he's like explaining and you know you hear certain things in this other language that you've never heard before uh-huh. and he's saying like Torre Gemelle and, and it's like towers twin. I'm like what? And I'm like oh twin towers and he's like making his you know hand gestures like with planes and I'm like Wow. What? And, and then, you know, so then my friend and I go to this bar, which is like full of people like looking up at the TV screens. And I was just like, we just, you know, the, the, the tower had fallen by that point or, or we were seeing it live. I don't know. But like all we saw was like this image of the towers falling and like, you know, you know, it was just anyway, that, that, that whole moment, like that day and the rest of my time in Italy was, was, uh, was surreal. And, um, and uh, momentous for me because, you know, back at home, there were, uh, you know, a lot of people in my home county who, who, uh, who died. And, uh, and we knew, we, we had, you know, uh, family, friends who, uh, who didn't make it. A lot of people in that part of New Jersey on the shore 
commute by ferry to Manhattan to work. Uh-huh. And yeah. uh, one of the first stops is uh, Wall Street. So there's a lot of people who go to work in the financial district. And uh, yeah, you know, we had, uh, you know, some, some people who didn't come back. And when I, so I was, it was weird to be so dissociated from this important cultural event, not only for America, but very specifically for my home, you know, mm-hmm. that was being felt in a very visceral way. Like, it's like week after week, like my mom just said, like, it's just, there's like funerals every week, you know, like, I mean, the, yeah. it was, it was, it was, you know, and then also just in the immediate aftermath, like not being able to contact, we didn't know, like, you know, couldn't locate certain family members, you know, who were in, in, in Manhattan and not, it was a lot of confusion at that, at, you know, at that day. But, um, anyway, uh, you know, I came home and, uh, that, uh, sort of precipitated for me what, what ended up being like a, a very large project that I worked on because I came back and there were all these um, memorials that were sort of makeshift uh, mementos that were left out um, photographs and articles of clothing uh, of people who had passed away and that was all being kind of eroded by this time in, in December and uh, I remember walking out to this uh, beach called Sandy Hook which is this little strip of you know it's like a little peninsula um, that looks out towards Manhattan. It's like, you know, on the Atlantic and then it kind of looks out over, you know, the, the, the harbor to Manhattan, uh, like the Verrazano Straits and stuff. And I remember going out there just because I wanted to see the skyline, you know, without the Twin Towers. Like, that was always sort of like a part of the backdrop, sort of like our landscape in, in that part of New Jersey. And uh, it, it was at that time that I just, like, you know, thought, like, I want to propose a, a memorial, like a more permanent thing. And you know, I just mm. been, I just come from this place that was, you know, steeped in that kind of sort of like, you know, um, permanent uh, memorial, you know, sort of, uh, you know, monument culture. Although we were saying earlier about how, you know, I don't think about it as, as, so, as so permanent, but right. it was more permanent than this like ephemera that was, uh, that was being left out. So anyway, I, you know, long story short, I proposed a memorial uh, and got some people involved. It was a big, it was totally volunteer. We did it as, as a nonprofit and raised some money and got some marble donated and um, uh, ended up making this um, this memorial, which is uh, situated right outside of Sandy Hook. Uh, really? In a town called Highlands, yeah. Really? Because I've been to Sandy Hook. I'll have I to didn't check realize it out. that's what it was. I think you... It, you it see, you've seen of, it, Tom? I think that's what it was, right? The, uh, there's some images, of, yeah. Yeah, it's yeah, part yeah, of the yeah, images, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I have some other images of close-ups and stuff. There's like, there's a big, there's like a figurative component. And then we can put these on the website, Tom. Those yeah, Definitely. that's awesome. With Steve's permission, for sure. Sure, yeah. I mean, I kind of I didn't even send you some of the other pictures because I, it's kind of a juvenile work, but uh, I mean, it's like it's a big but juvenile work. It's like very early and like you know the um, well, people would love to see it. I'm sure. Sure, I mean, like it's figurative. It's very you know uh, Michelangelo esque. I mean, like there's there's you know a couple of uh, large sort of like figurative components, um, but. Um, and then it's encircled by you know some some rough boulders that were just have been sliced in half, with the names of all the three oh, you know nearly three thousand uh, victims on the inside of it. Wow. Um, but I'll send you some I'll send some better pictures of it. But yeah, so it, that was sort of a labor of love uh, that started then, and it was just more about the the process of it and the making of it. Like the whole community got involved, and uh, people were just I mean it was there were no huge contributions of money it was all like you know five dollars twenty five dollars maybe five thousand dollars was like the largest number but like it was it took a lot to to get that done and then it actually dragged out over a long period of time we had most of the physical components done 
uh, in like just this, you know, after a couple months of work that summer of 2002. But, uh, but it wasn't until 2011 uh, that we were able to actually permanently install it because huh. that, just be, simply because of town politics. They hadn't, you know, they didn't know exactly where to place it. The park where it's situated is called Veterans Memorial Park. And a couple of veterans in the town said, no, no, we wanted to put a tank there in the middle of the park. But then, but most of the, like, like the rest of the town wanted to have, you know, the memorial we had done located there. So it was just like, you know, it was just tiny, tiny town politics that, you know, they could never resolve it. And uh, part of the reason too, is also like they didn't, they didn't have the money to actually situate it. So Hmm. when the 10 year anniversary was coming up, uh, you know, I and the other people who had worked on this with me said, we were like, we, if we don't put this in the ground now, this is never going to happen, you know, because this is, people are paying attention to it again after 10 years, we have to make a last push here, or this is just going to, uh, you know, remain here. And it's got that, that's disgraceful, you know, that's, uh-huh. that, that hasn't, you know, because even people, you know, we were really involved with, uh, a lot of, we, I, I had, you know, um, a, a, a wonderful network of like family, surviving families, who participated in this. Like mm. I would let them come and like carve on the marble or, oh, uh, yeah, a lot of people, they, they, they seem to, um, get, get something really meaningful out of that because their loss was so intangible. Like just somebody didn't, you know, come home one day. Right. And, uh, sometimes they didn't have remains or whatever. And so, uh, it was a, this really beautiful, um, community sort of driven effort that, uh, and, uh, and it's a, therefore the onus of, of finishing it was much heavier on me, you know, because I felt like I was like letting people down, you mm-hmm. know, if this too was not resolved, you know? And so, so we did it. Fortunately, the stars aligned. We got some more in-kind contributions to do all the landscaping and the cement pouring and all, all these things that you don't realize how much they're going to cost. you know, where uh, was this sitting this whole time? It was there in the park. So the, the, the marble components were there, mm. uh, in the park, just not, uh, like installed permanently they were they're in halves so it's 13 feet high but that there's like two sections that are um uh you might not be able to see from the pictures because we tried to you know blend it as well you know as closely as possible you can sort of see a little bit of a disjoint and one of the issues is that over the course of 10 years sitting there nearly whatever it was nine years the the bottom stones had been sitting on like railroad lumber which had sunk into the ground and the tannins from the wood and whatever was in the ground had leached into the stone all six feet up, like slowly, just like tea, like you like soaked like a, um, uh, a sugar cube in tea. Really? Yeah. And so... Because marble's so porous. It is, yeah. And it'll slowly like, you know, absorb things. Wick it up. Yeah, it, it totally wicked it up. And so we had to... Uh, that was a whole adventure too, figuring out how people clean stone like that, and you know, that's a whole. So we had to, you had to clean the stone. I took it. I wasn't now ten years later as an artist. I was looking at it and dissatisfied, so I said, "Well, I want to take the top halves off so I can recarve some stuff." Mm. So I, I worked on that. That's one one good thing about marbles that there's no uh, uh, expiration date on it. You know, <laughs> you, you can you can revisit it at any time. But uh, yeah, so well, I worked, that's to my earlier question. If you do rework something like that. Is it just getting smaller and smaller? Like, say, if you were reworking a head, does the head just shrink? Yeah, except that, you know, in a case like this, and this is how um, some artists, uh, again, to pick sort of like the cliche, but Michelangelo works directly 
uh, in the stone, so he's always leaving a lot of material around it, right? So he can make changes. Whereas if you were very specifically pinned to a model and you didn't leave that much room, then or, or you had the whole thing roughed out on the backside, then yes, things are going to start to look weird. Like if you were going to recarve the face, you'd have to push it back. Actually, there's some there's some great examples of that on um, on Roman. Uh, carvings like I, I think it's like uh, Constantine's arch or some of the other arches in Rome where they would have like the, the, the portrait of the emperor of the time and then the next emperor comes in and it's like no no you're going to put my face on there and so like like this, the face looks it looks a little kind of like weird compared to like the rest of the stuff it's just been like pushed back it's like a little bit flatter you know ah, than other stuff yeah so sometimes there's a disjoint there but in my case there was a, there, were, there was plenty of material and the tweaks that I wanted to do were things that um, uh, that, were, that were you know manageable if I could go back today I would recarve it again but at a certain point you have to kind of close that as a chapter in your life and um, and so yeah we did it Steve you mentioned this word kind of tangibility and before when you were describing kind of the use of power tools and you were talking about how it makes you further removed kind of like like this is obviously some you know like something that is really important to you just just from like the way you talk about it being able to touch it being kind of you know like close to your sculpture how do you feel about what Tan asked earlier that kind of so many of the sculptures that are really well known today don't really do it themselves or sometimes don't even touch it. Uh, yeah, and, you're baiting uh, me, Dina. <laughs> yeah, okay. No, you, you know what? It's, it's actually just that, like, um, like this is something that we we you know wanted to talk about. Sure, and sure. I yeah. feel sure. like we you manufacturerism. Um, yeah. Well, um, yeah, yeah, no, no. I feel like there's so many interesting things that you you could talk about that we could just sure. tangentialize forever. But I feel like this one is important and. Yeah we won't hear it from anyone except you. And it's something that I think we all think about kind of in the painting world as well. For sure. So yeah. I, I, I feel like I, I don't remember exactly when I met you, but I feel like it was around the time that I was curating, co-curating, assisting cur- Trek Lexington and curating right. um, right. this yeah, show right. called The Assistance, about, mm-hmm. uh, which is kind of about the personal work of... Um, or, you know, of the artists that have been assisting the famous artists that are around right now. Oh, and yeah. Mark Miller. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. Um, and you worked an assistant to, um, I mean, I, I remember your work was in the show. I'm trying to remember who you were assisting at, at some point. It might have been Mark Menon, uh, who is a stone carver who um, also has taught at the New York Academy of Art. And when I, uh, when I was there um, getting my MFA, I... Uh, I met him, and he invited me up to sort of be a studio assistant. And I did that for a year. Um, So, yeah, that was my experience in a studio. I've done some other, like, sort of, like, part-time stuff for, uh, I guess, one other sculptor. But, yeah, stone sculpture is is so uh, reliant on... uh, infrastructure and support in a variety of ways that it's it's perhaps one of those uh media that that that, that lends itself to uh other people intervening to greater or lesser extent and there's a long so labor intensive yeah labor intensive and also just you can't it's not just the the creation of the sculpture but you know when that 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 block of stone being on your work table is the is the, the the last chapter of a story that started when that thing was a piece of mountainside, right? Uh-huh. So just, you know, cutting that thing out of the earth and dragging it down to, you know, processing it, cutting it up and splitting it into pieces, squaring it up and getting it 
down to where you, you're starting what, what's the beginning of another story is, is a long and labor-intensive process that has a whole bunch of people involved and you know, people die during that part of the process. That's mm-hmm. extremely dangerous and arduous. Um, but um, <clears throat> so yeah, it's very. And you know, one thing too is like you know, I've always noticed about uh, uh, stone sculptors is that they they tend to be um, gregarious and uh, uh, I mean they can be curmudgeonly. Michelangelo was not known to be like a um, socialite, but uh, but you know, it's not a solitary practice. It very rarely is. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, you're very often relying on a network of people to help you. Uh, Procure the stone, move it, situate it, problem solve with it, you know. Uh, and, uh, yeah, so therefore most of the people in the stone carving community that I know are like, um, I don't know, they, they, they tend to be like a, 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 a friendly and cooperative group because we're just used to needing to help one another to actually to yeah, get um, things done. As opposed to painters, by the way, who it's a totally solitary practice. I feel like half the reasons that I really like being here is actually that it gets me you get away. To talk. Yeah, it gets a talk. <laughs> and most painters are completely self-absorbed. I thought the, 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 the carvers are dogs and uh, painters are more cat-like in that yeah, way. But, yeah, but yeah. Yeah, the same with painting is that you don't need any. You know, you, you don't really need anyone else, and you're just yeah. kind of like in your head and with the thing on the canvas, yeah. and you can do that for days, weeks. Um, sure, I and, yeah, and then, even what you're doing that, is noisy and. And have, have you guys ever noticed how, like, after after a full studio day, um, you kind of forget how to talk? Oh, absolutely. Uh, like, like it takes 20 you're to 40 weird. minutes. With, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. To just and you're exhausted being... for some reason, too, when you've just been either sitting or standing. Although, yeah, and, and, and Matthew is going to be talking about, you know, chipping, chipping thing. You know, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, let's not talk about how physically exhausted we are before, before we start. Did you say so tired exhausted? Fading. Oh, wow. I get exhausted. Yeah. Well, yeah. Maybe, then maybe perhaps my dream of becoming a painter when I can no longer sculpt is actually... <laughs> Uh, delusional if it's actually well, hard work I just, when you're a uh, 70 year old uh, the guy in Italy that struck me that that guy's still carving that was insane he's, well, he's, he's not Luigi. but oh know, he's he, not he's not but I think he I, I think that, that but, but, but stone carvers famously go on a long time and really? uh, Michelangelo yeah Michelangelo was working on a two figure life size uh, sculpture um, up until Two weeks before he died, basically at the age wow. of uh, nearly ninety. Whoa! Wow. Yeah, yeah. Uh, carving away at it. But Luigi is a little different because, see, Michelangelo was sort of like fiercely pursuing his own inner vision as an artist. But Luigi was an artisan, you know. Uh, he, uh, he, yeah, he had no. I don't think he. I, I don't know that he ever like invented anything. He was always translating things from from models for other people, mm-hmm. and he, I think he was quite content to. Because you know it's um, very hard to spend, spend more time with his remaining limbs. You know <laughs> exactly. Yeah, you beat up you beat up your body a lot, and especially again nowadays. I don't know. Michelangelo had a whole other set of problems. You imagine like working without safety glasses, for instance. But like, but with power tools, and then you know working at the kind of pace that like uh, an artisan has to work to 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 you know keep the lights on and eat. Um, doing stuff for other people is just you know I think Luigi at whatever so eight, I don't know if he was in his late sixties or seventy like when he stopped after like a long life of having like done that you know yeah. so, broken so, rocks for a living. 
So, 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 so that was my other question, um, but I feel like we didn't touch on the first one yet. How do you keep the lights on? I feel like being a sculptor is like even harder to it's even harder to make a living that way than painting, which is also not yeah, very. Yeah, for sure. But I mean, we've we've mm. kind of all done probably every painting related, you Survival know, like, jobs. We, um, but 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 we've we've been lucky enough to do, you know, we've been assistants. Um, I, I met you know like met him as an assistant. Um, yeah, um, we've we've done that and teaching, and in my case, it was jewelry remaking but like what is a sculptor's version of that yeah well we cobble it together like everybody else in the arts I mean you know like my I don't know if my life is emblematic uh, but it you know I um, I, you know I've 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 taught so like you guys I've I've taught I've done uh, you know uh, commission work um, and uh, maybe where we well I think this you know not necessarily diversions because it all has to do with craft, right? And so I don't know if you guys have ever been asked to do things that are sort of like related to painting, maybe not necessarily what you would want to paint, but because you have that that, that particular like most, skill. Most of, mm-hmm. most of yeah, the yeah. way I've made a living up until very, very recently sure. has been that. <laughs> right, but I mean, like, okay, right, right, right. But even like outside of commissions, like for example, what we, because stone carving is so craft heavy, you have to learn that incidentally, right? Just to be able to make creations so uh then all of a sudden you could do like you know if let's say i want to carve figures then i probably already know how to carve like a a capital or a column or something so that when somebody has something that needs to be restored you know that's a side project that you can do and like a lot of the carvers i know i don't do i I, i've done that occasionally to um you know to to supplement my income for sure but i don't do it as much as others like for example a good friend sebastian martirana you should look up his work. He's a great carver down in Baltimore. And, uh, but his, you know, his main gig is like working for a stone fabrication company, you know, and he does everything like they're doing, you know, slab polishing and like the bread and butter stuff, which is mostly sort of like architectural, but anything related to a chisel he does. Right. So any kind of like ornamentation and lettering, he does all the lettering at St. Patrick's cathedral, um, hmm. and, uh, and then he does, you know, his, he has his studio situated there too, and he's doing his own creative work, which is, has nothing to do with the, the other stuff, but you can, you know, a lot of, m- many of the carvers I know do that, you know, they do stuff for, for the trade. It seems like, like you said, Baltimore, it seems like that would be a more manageable life as a stone carver, like studio space would be cheaper. What, what are the advantages of living in New York as a stone, where a studio is like, ridiculously expensive for that uh, I'm, I'm not sure I question uh, uh, my, my, my the sanity of that choice <laughs> yeah, why are you here like, yeah, you should be in Italy exactly well he will be in Italy like next week yeah, yeah oh, okay. that's true uh, but yeah I think it, you know it's a confluence of factors I mean it, well you know strangely it's it, it's home in a way right I mean I kind of grew up you know uh, what, like 40 miles south of here and you know always was part in the city because of family and friends and life and then went to graduate school here and I think it became apparent to me while I was living and training in Italy that that was a good place to make work but uh, not to sell it uh-huh. and I didn't feel like I was in a community of uh, like-minded creators there, there was a pool of people uh, who would be there who were creating stuff um, but they were just kind of, uh, it felt a little bit, the scene felt a little bit provincial. And there was just, I think most of the excitement was from people who were coming in. Domingo, okay. Where do we, uh, 
We're asking Steve about uh, yeah, art market man- manufacturism. <laughs> Actually, it's kind of yeah. a nice lead in because we we've gotten past your education at this point, and and now we're in the art world proper. Like what what's been your experience with that? Yeah. Well, it's uh, you know I don't know what my experience. Uh, is like compared to other people. I mean, I, I mean, I don't know. I feel like I come from a, um, the art world for me is, uh, a new phenomenon, you know? Uh, and so I guess, um, a new phenomenon for me, it's a new culture. uh, It's a new, uh, uh, market, a new community. Mm -hmm. Um, and I say that just because I came from a place of, having just kind of drawn and like made just created things on my own for enjoyment um over the years and having gone to a school for like for liberal arts stuff and then pursued music and then gone to live in a foreign country um without thinking about being part of the art world or knowing anything about the art world mm-hmm. um i really only started to understand it uh, or just to know about it when I, uh, you know, went to grad school to get my MFA at the New York Academy. At the New York Academy, um, and uh, and then you know, and this was after like you know I had paused between undergrad and that. What was the gap? I mean, I went back to grad school when I was like thirty, thirty, thirty-one, something with like Italy that. in between, with Italy and life stuff in between, and uh-huh. so. Yeah, and so I kind of come to it as an anthropologist in a way, you know? It's like this uh, curious, bizarre tribe uh-huh. or collection of tribes. Uh, of course, highly dysfunctional in, <laughs> in a lot of ways, but also, also you know, very functional in, 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 you know, in other ways, you know, it, it inherent to itself, like sort of integral to itself that don't, that, you know, ways that don't make sense to the rest of the world, right? Right. Um, in fact, you know, I don't know, I don't know if you guys have ever had the experience of trying to explain some of these dissonant characteristics to people in your families or people who aren't involved in the art world. Like, I remember, you know, I don't know, I think it's only recently, just think about this with my parents, like, after years of them telling me, well, just get your... They don't even know how to talk about... Like, like get, get, do you need a manager or something? <laughs> like, they think it's, like, the entertainment business. Or, yeah, like, okay. Or can't you just go out? Like, you know, Steve, why don't you just put your stuff in... Um, see if, you know, a hotel would, like, put your sculpture in there. Maybe you could get some business because people coming into the hotel would see your sculpture. And then, you know, like, uh-huh. they just, like, yeah. have no idea how things work. Or they think right. it's a meritocracy, you know, that just by... Well, being a good yeah. draftsman or a sculptor, you're going to get jobs, or or you can just like walk into a gallery with your portfolio and just you know be like. Oh. I want to pick up on that really quick because I think even a lot of our listeners, being aspiring artists or professional artists themselves, I think that is a big illusion that the art world is not a foot race. Like the fastest person does not get across the no, line no. first by yeah. no means like, yeah. you know, I, I, I tried a few years ago I tried I was dealing with a gallery that was being particularly sleazy even even for galleries and <laughs> I was trying to explain what was happening to um, and they basically disappeared with maybe like six months of my work and you know it was not, not, not seen again but um, wow. the, um, and and I, I, I mean in any case I was trying to, to, to explain this to the 
um, maintenance man at my building who had a ton of who had oh, a jail? Yeah, yeah. Who has an, an enormous criminal record. Um, but I, I, I was trying to be like, okay, and then I gave him the work, and then they said they stole Why it. Why did you give him me... the uh, name and number of the person who stole it? Yeah, totally. You <laughs> can take care of him. Yeah, yeah. So, so he's listening God to this, and he's like, "Well, this is just like this is just like the criminal. I mean, like, like, like people are like people like this are in jail. But here's what we're gonna do. I'm gonna get this big can of kerosene or gasoline or something, you know, and God. like, and go to the gallery, and I'm gonna get the guy. You give me his name. I'm gonna put it. Yeah, no, no, no. He's like, I'm just gonna put the guy gasoline in and say, give me the paintings, uh, because that's the way it works in my world. And, and that was like a very sweet offer. He, oh, he uh, I mean, that that was better advice. Honestly, that, that was sort of better advice to get the paintings back than I got from anyone else. That's a great <laughs> template. So, yeah, for all the listeners, you need your paintings back? You oh, yeah, do. and sign consignment forms, especially if the gallery says, oh, no, but you trust me, right? Uh, let's just, you know, it's, it's a handshake. Like, we trust each other. Like, the second you hear that, get a consignment form even immediately. With the consign- even with the they Even if you it. sign it? And, and still don't pay you. They, but because guess what? Happened? Like, they can afford the lawyers. You can't. Um, a lot so of galleries can't, though. Yeah, well, little... you don't know that. But it is funny, like, speaking of that, your two worlds, you're straddling, like, gallery world and then the the super at the building. Like, I remember kind of, like, what you're, you're talking about, Steve, like, entering this world. And you come from literally, like, stealing food in art school to <laughs> sort of, like, survive and then to instantly having to know what like vintage is good and caviar like, yeah, like yeah, yeah. collector's tables like what the hell just <laughs> have? i don't know anything I, I, about yeah, this I, I, that never ha- in my world um you know figuring out what kind of caviar is good never happened <laughs> oh my god i have been with like at art you've been to art parties or collectors where they're talking about that stuff and you're just like i don't know that i didn't I know actually, any of this. I, I actually almost <laughs> haven't really I, I basically my career only developed because of instagram where i could not go to that stuff and like kind of like pretend that i was still having a life when i actually went i had no idea how to talk to people or you know do tell do tell uh oh just about that whole stuff yeah so yeah. i mean it's a, yeah i mean it's you know it's a, it's a it's a bizarre world i don't know how it relates to the I, I do have friends in the entertainment industry and that sounds even more sordid and uh distasteful but um but yeah, it's, it's, it's weird. And so, you know, I don't know, like I just try to, I guess, bottom line, you know, if you want to participate in uh, certain communities, then you have to kind of learn its rules, right? Um, but at the same time, I'm not willing to sort of become slavish to, to uh, those dicta or to kind of, um, I don't know, spend uh, or what I perceive to be like my valuable time chasing some kind of chimerical carrot that may or may not lead somewhere because a lot of people um just spend a lot of time networking and uh you know being at those art events and stuff like that and why i don't want to dismiss that because i understand that that is that's like a sort of a critical practice and i probably you know maybe i would um uh gain benefits from doing more of that that kind of stuff but it's always um it feels as though um, certain parts of contemporary art practice involve a lot more, uh, a lot more, more um, I don't know, just the socializing, but a lot more energy kind of put into areas outside of actually just making good work. 
And yeah. so that's always been that that's, that 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 always has been and remains a struggle for me because I find it hard enough just to get into the studio and to to go deep and try to produce something that I can stand behind. So you're basically not a sellout. I guess like the last episode we were discussing how how you know infrequently that word gets used now because uh-huh. that's more, selling out is more or less like encouraged or there is no such thing. But so when we're talking about the list of people to kind of invite for this uh, for this thing, um, that that was one of my like like you have integrity. Like, yeah. Like the, I don't know, or it could be stupidity because honestly, <laughs> yeah. uh, you, know, you know those two are like you know. Like, yeah, yeah, that's the <laughs> they're, they're not exclusive. Uh, but yeah, no, I. I mean, yeah, I mean, I'm definitely uh, by sort of, you know, kind of like, uh, uh, you know, following my own, what's the, what's the, the expression? Like, Bliss? Yeah, sure, that one. I was thinking of the, uh, being my own, uh, following my own tune or whatever the expression is. Yeah, but whatever. Um, uh, I, I, I might, um, I don't know might, you know, not succeed in a sort of conventional way or, you know, definitely I'm not fast-tracked to any kind of, like, you know, art stardom. But uh, I'm just trying to be happy in the meantime rather than um, uh, chase something that might not work out or set up expectations. Because the other thing I, I, I learn as I go through this and I have friends who, um, you know, excel to different degrees and in different ways in the art world and it does also seem to be in a lot of ways, not all that it's made out to be, you know, uh, in other words, like people who, I mean, I think there are certain like success stories and, you know, people with waiting lists for their work and selling for gargantuan sums, but it feels like, you know, every sort of level that somebody sort of achieves career wise comes with different sets of problems. And that also even like a, a good critical reception doesn't guarantee a sustainable life you know there's a lot of people um that i either know personally or have heard of who you know had like a moment uh of uh, great acclaim or whatever who are kind of like off the radar now or struggling and their work you know has been is devalued or their you know gallery has closed or whatever the story is you know and so you know unfortunately i've you know also in the meantime as i've just been sort of doing my thing I've been seasoned by all these these stories of you know people who have risen and fallen and like you know relationships you know the, the friend of mine years ago who got his first gallery I remember that was like he was so excited and uh, and kind of like you know um, you know a little bit cocky about it and uh, and then it just turned out and I'm sorry for him but it just turned out to be this nightmare relationship you know the the, the gallery wouldn't like release the work for a while you know it wasn't selling the stuff and. Um, I know that was just the, the, the beginning of like a, a cascade of, of, of stories of very various kinds that kind of um, made me very uh, um, uh, vigilant, I guess, and aware uh, and skeptical of. And I don't think it's like I have the reverse Midas touch. I kill gallery, you know. The, uh, but, but most of the galleries I've worked with over the last, I don't know, 15 years of showing have closed down. And some of them have been, like, pretty good relationships. A lot of them have been, like, you know, like a bad romantic relationship. It starts off, there's a honeymoon period. And then, you know, a year later, you're like, oh, I hate it. Anything is better than this, you know. Like, um, I, how could you do this to me? But um, your art career, like,
like you will outlive most of the galleries you work with. So like you mm. not your our career, you as an artist, like you, Steve Shaheen, will keep making sculptures long after most of the places you've worked with have you know, closed down and the person has moved to the other side of the country that's never seen again. <laughs> yeah, it does feel like that. I mean, even in some places that I, or, you know, been in group shows, um, at least four or five of them no longer exist. I'd have to look at the list, but I mean, I, I, right off the top of my head, I know I'm, that number, you know. I mean, um, sure, I mean definitely the place was where, where, like, the group shows that you, um, you were in of. Like in the shows that I curated, that's that, that no longer. Well, well that, now yeah. that's six or seven. I didn't, yeah, yeah. I didn't <laughs> thought about those. Yeah, yeah. It's a very, it's very fluid. I mean, it's a, and you start to realize that too. That these things, you know, all of a sudden you think that it's like this. This um, you put it on a pedestal, like you know, like a, a particular gallery, or just like the idea of achieving, or just having a gallery, yeah. and you realize that it's like, yeah, that that is that is. Um, uh, you know, just a mirage, you know, but, yeah, that notion. Yeah, for all of you who are artists, like, it means nothing, having a gallery or not having a gallery. Yep. Like, you And can, if you get locked into a contract, like, you're screwed, don't do it, um, because I know artists that, you know, that, that, that were in that situation where they're super happy, they just sign on the dotted line, next thing you know, they're just stuck because they can't, the gallery's not selling their work, and they need a job to actually like, yeah. support themselves, and they can't get a job because they have to like you know like it's it's weird. But it's yeah. just sort and of they like can't it, sell like commissions because yeah you know, because of the contract. Well, so. I th- yeah, I think it's interesting. I mean, you know, in in some ways, it's not entirely analogous, but I'm sure all of you have thought about this too. It's like a relationship, right, with another person. Uh, I mean, just like the gallery relationship is really kind of like almost like a, r- a romantic relationship and uh you know i think you get fucked <laughs> <laughs> you get a screen yeah, totally I mean, like, and i think shit out of them. yeah i mean you do hear about some instances where it seems to be working well just like also you know in human relationships and i think i think that's like in an ideal world i think a gallery uh at least i don't know if this is like again too idealistic but i think that there are examples of some galleries that you know would would help you sell work in a, um, a better way than just you operating by yourself out in the world, you know, will help get you, you know, critical exposure and placement here and there and uh, have access to, a, you know, a, a bigger, a big Rolodex of clientele. Um, and who also, I think importantly, can be that sort of interface on the commercial side that, you know, kind of buffers you from having to, you know, deal with like negotiating for your, you know, with your work and this and that. And, um, can be an advocate and also perhaps give you some kind of, you know, career guidance. Like, oh, maybe, maybe like, you know, participating in this situation over here is not so good or you might think about this or, you know. Um, or maybe give you some feedback about your work. Sure, like, you exactly. Know, because honestly, yeah, after, you, after you get out of, you know, grad school, no one really cares. Like, no, like, no, like, no, like, no one cares you, enough to even give you... You are not a special you, snowflake. Yeah, yeah. You're nothing. All right, all right, Tom. <laughs> Thanks for saying that. <laughs> Thanks for the full voice you're of the <laughs> <laughs> that is meaningful and I feel like yeah I used to put a much higher value on like being represented by a gallery or having a gallery and then after having like had a bunch or been you know like um, like 
like the chances of a much like a, a relationship actually the chances of something working out are like very very tiny and so you know enjoy it while you have it um if they start treating you badly you know drop it uh, and kind of keep keep doing your own thing which seems to be what you're doing well thanks i don't know i mean i, I think but i mean just to follow up with what you're saying i think it's all about where you are with your um in your own work with your just like in a relationship, right? Like how strong your sense of self is, how protected and diversified you are as opposed to being completely dependent on that entity. I mean, something that Mark Menon, you know, the sculptor I work for, um, was uh, urging me early on. He was saying, well, he, said, he would always say two things that stuck with me. Many more than just two things, but these two things relate to what we're saying now. One is that it's, you know, it's a marathon, not a sprint. Mm. You know, and it's okay. all about the long game and endurance. You know, uh, don't think about like, okay, next year is the year that I'm gonna make it or find the gallery or whatever. It's just about like keeping a sustainable and fulfilling practice. You know, for yourself, what by whatever means, right? And then um, the second thing was that he he urged me to uh, to keep in mind was keeping a, div- a divide. I'm gonna sound like a financial advisor, but keeping a diverse portfolio, basically, in terms of things that you you can do. And, and for him, that's meant being not only involved in ga- with galleries as he has been over the years, but also doing like landscape, uh, like large scale outdoor commissions and things like that. Things that can never be taken away by a gallery unless he wants that to like unless you know some like mega gallery says okay we also want to get a piece of you know these like large commissions but you know in exchange here's something of value we're going to give you this stipe this annual stipend like i think uh i think he told me was it like um like artists on the gagosian roster get like sometimes get half a million and just have to produce a certain number of paintings i don't know if that's just uh bullshit yeah that sounds about right that's so really is nice. it? But they is have it, to pay it back if they don't sell anything. That's what they don't. Oh, is that right? Yeah. Well, Larry's uh, not dumb. <laughs> so is yeah. it is it passion that sustains that marathon? Do you think? Like, how do you? So for those dips for for people out there, like when it's rough, you know, you. I think there's something like people out of art school. Less than one percent actually keep doing art. Yeah. And and that speaks to me less than talent, less than anything. It just there's a lack of passion that people aren't continuing no, but, but, to do but, this. But it's thing. also just it's also I'm not sure. I feel like some people do have the passion. It's just hard. Like it's hard to keep working these stupid jobs and then going home at night and like finding the energy to, like you know, like work yeah, on sure. or like work on your you know like like your own thing. And especially like I think kind of when you're 25, it's a lot more doable. When you're 35, I don't know, maybe you have like Kids, a family or wife. something, and like you know, like like and then and then when are you really going? You know, it's just, it's just like it's not lack of passion; it's lack of time and resources. So, yeah, uh-huh. I think yeah. There's lots of answers to that question. You know, I think part of it, like what, yeah, what, what, what sustains people. I think part of it is, um, first of all, like why you in it, right? And I think some people definitely want an art career. You know, and, and right. if things don't start to pan out, then that I think could it's become like Hollywood, like a, a another version sure. of glamour. Yeah, that could become then it becomes tiring, right? If that's mostly what's what's fueling fueling you. Um, but yeah, I think Dina's right that like things can um, things can become uh, overwhelming. I think one of the things that uh, you know has been tough for me over the years 
but which I guess I guess because I you know I'm, I'm I find great joy in making things. Mm-hmm. Um, so if if that's anything that kind of like pulls me out of these you know these dips, um, but it is like the uh, it's you know the accumulation of stuff like as a sculptor. You know, when you're making things and, you know, you send things off to shows, maybe something sells, maybe something comes back or whatever. But it's just actually having all these objects around uh, and raw materials, too. So, like, I don't know for you guys if you can, like, you know, roll up or, you know, file file paintings away in a rack or something like that. But for me, I had these big, heavy things, you know, uh-huh. um, that are uh, big and heavy, but also strangely, paradoxically breakable, you know, at the same time. Heavy needed... and fragile. Bad yeah, Exactly, yeah. Horrible, <laughs> expensive, nightmare. like hard to move. <laughs> uh, and so I, I think with, you know, my particular products, that, that can become, well, you know, no, no pun intended, but weighty. You know, just like having, having all this stuff. Um Literally, and uh, and there have been times I thought, you know what, I just want to start over. Like I, just, I want not with like stone sculpture. I want to just make new stuff. And everything I have right now is I, I want to put on a you know a barge and bring it out in the Atlantic somewhere and just you know, dump, dump it off a boat. Seriously, like zero zero attachment to it. And uh, uh, just probably don't want to spend the money to do that. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, barge. Call, a, good, a good barge yeah. is hard to find. Call <laughs> me. Call me before you do it. I'll take some off your hands. Yeah, yeah, yeah no, sure. I think no, I, like, but that's like a, that's a piece. That's a will piece it fit in the elevator, Marshall? Yeah. <laughs> Freight I, elevator. Yeah, you know, I, I actually nine to five I never Monday keep, through Friday. I mean, yeah. I, like I don't have the same storage problem you do, but I basically have almost <coughs> none of my own paintings up in my apartment. Like I have one wall, which is like the studio wall, where I put things that are in a series as long as I'm working on them. And as soon as that series is done, I, I, you know, get them off and it's a blank yeah. wall again. I never like spread the work anywhere else. Yeah. Um, like I give it to a gallery or I keep it in the closet when it comes back. Uh, um, so but, but I don't like seeing old work around because all I see when I look at it is like, either it's, it's one of two things and both are bad. One is the mistakes that I made and what I would have done different this time. And sometimes I look at it and I'm like, God, that's, <coughs> that's, that's really pretty good. Oh, I, I'm not sure I could do that again. <laughs> you know? And that's even worse. Uh, that's funny. Neither are positive. Yeah, yeah. yeah like, like, like there's nothing about looking at old work that will make me feel good. I heard uh, Wayne Coyne, actually Steve, uh, Flaming Lips front man, he was talking about... Um, your art looking back on it like Dina was talking about and saying that it's not the ones that you created. He's like, the last album I always hate. He's like, but then if you can go back 10 years, I love that. <laughs> He's yeah. like, because I hated it when it was my last album, but now yeah. there's distance and I don't even feel like that person anymore. And I just look at it and I'm like, that guy did pretty good. Yeah. 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 That guy was. Yeah, but it's a weird... I don't, I don't like that feeling where I'm like oh yeah that, that's that's actually pretty good um, yeah. I'm not sure that the person I am right now would have like you know the sustained energy to do it and that's, that's like even worse than that's like so look at all the mistakes I made but you know in, in the next five years you'll look back and be like oh that's pretty good too uh, yeah. it's like, a, it's so, like um, a math it's like a rubric um, that will happen sometimes I actually feel both sometimes I see all the mistakes and feel like I could no longer do this <laughs> <laughs> even mistake like that anymore <laughs> But um, that's funny. You know, I I was curious what you guys think about this because we were were talking about oh, just thinking about like dumping things in the ocean or like this irreverence to your old work. What do you guys think about uh, like when you finish something? 
are you uh, are you in awe of it? Are you um, tired of it by then? And you know, you've been staring at it for so long. I mean, like, what is that sense of completion feel like to, to you I, as I artists? Like, I, I like almost everything I finish for about two weeks. And mm-hmm. then I, if it's still in my studio, I start to slowly dislike it. <laughs> after. Uh, but yeah, well, for a while it feels great. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but you know, uh, like I guess there's different parts to each project. And like there's a part where kind of you're just winding up, like you're, you're figuring stuff out and you're like, like, and things are really exciting. And that's not very long, actually. And then there's the end when, like, at least for me, like, I like finishing and I like, you know, figuring out all the tiny little details, my two hairbrushes. Uh-huh. And then there's everything in the middle, which is, I guess, like, what you would call, you know, it's, 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 it's the art grind. It's, the, it's, yeah. uh, it's yeah, kind of sure, intense, uh-huh. not necessarily very interesting. The middles um, are the worst. And honestly, that's sure. actually how I feel about <laughs> it. That's how I feel about this part of life, by the way. <laughs> like, <laughs> well, the middle, the, the middle grind part. Is, the middle is the longest in all of no, these. No, 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 no. But, but you know what I'm trying to say? Like, there's like the, be- the beginning of life when you're just like winding up and like figuring out how to like walk, talk, paint, uh-huh. you know, et cetera. And then there's the end when like the machinery is all like, you know, like winding down. And then the middle is like, it's intense, and a lot of it is like doing the same thing every day, and not all of those things are like yeah. interesting. Just and I feel like the, like, two like diminishing returns. Yeah, um, yeah, and I feel like this particular part of my life, like it's a part where most things happen, actually. But it's like, but we, I, I know whatever it is, like, like, like you know, kids but... painting, like, like it's all the stuff that like I like it, I love it, I want to do it well. But like on a daily basis, Why it's kind so of it, it's kind of a grind. I'm not uh, bored, but it's like, but I'm tired, and like you know, all the, <laughs> Steve, uh, I mean, she cut that all out. Let's get back to Steve. <laughs> no, you know, that's also like uh, the you know the the difference between like the professionals and like the weekend artists is that like you don't wait to be inspired. You don't wait to be. You don't wait to be inspired, and you don't not that you don't mind it. Like you just barrel through the middle part. Because yeah. you know that that's what it takes, and you're okay with it. And yeah, that really separates the men from you know whatever. Well, well yeah, the boys, I think the whips. <laughs> what yeah. were you gonna say there? What's yeah, exactly. you know, the goldfish? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that. Uh, yeah, I think also the, the the ability to have. I think the irreverence towards the work is is important uh, that because it also enables uh, the editing to happen. And the, the, the fearlessness to like, you know, um, uh, to, to you know, in my case, like you know, maybe they take up some tools and just like be barbaric on something if it's not if it's not right, even after you've labored over it for days or weeks or whatever. You know, I think about I know it's like it sounds so like cliche to keep on bringing up Michelangelo, but if you look at the last work that he did, uh, which was his Pietà Rondanini, it's in uh, Milan, and it's a uh, we were talking about that. That was like the two-figure composition. That's like you know uh, the, the last thing he was working on, uh, and uh, it's it's so um, sublime. There's a um, it's uh, the the you know like Mary holding Jesus after, you know when he's dead off the cross, and uh, there like it was carved a different way the first time, and then like. Uh, far into it he changed his mind and started to like recarve it the same way that you just like change around your painting or whatever uh, and so there's an arm that's like completely like polished and finished out in space that's like truncated here and it's just standing there and then the rest of the figures are now over here Whoa. and you can see the Virgin Mary's face 
and Jesus's face this way, like their eyes are still here, but the faces are here because it was a totally different composition. It was just the complete masterful That's freedom so cool. to be able to just like treat it like it was like a drawing, you know, and to, um, wow. and to, to rework it. And so I think that, I think that that is like where if I call it the professionalism or the trade or what the, the full investment, you know, happens, you know, and you know, the ability to, to go back in and, you know, know that, that you have to dismantle to build it the right way, perhaps. It's also yeah. the integrity, like you, like Dina was saying earlier, and like the risk and the, I mean, that's living, that's, that's like working on a precipice, you know, sure. the unknown embracing that. It's, it's, and I think that's the, that's one of the crucial differences between making your own work versus not uh-huh. is actually, is actually that idea of, you know, are you Lewis and Clark in this bear infested wilderness or are you a drone surveying everything from this very, very safe, sterile, far distance? Uh-huh. You know, and, and, you know, like, are you, are you, uh, are you climbing the mountain and possibly going to die from lack of oxygen or exposure? Or are you taking a helicopter to the top? You know, and, yeah. and I think that that is like one of the things that is, uh, is, is, is critical for people to be, you know, thinking about and talking about maybe particularly for artists who are starting out in a world where, um, you know, I think a lot of people are, are even hearing in, in art school that they don't necessarily have to worry about uh, the fabrication, the making part of it, because there will be sources for that later. You know oh. what I mean? It's just it's just enough I, to come up with the good idea, but I, mm-hmm. I, I which know. I think is of, of course it's important. I, I, mm-hmm. yeah, you know, yeah, but, but since when are the people that make ideas not the same people that execute them? So, so by the way, for, for well, songwriters, singer songwriters, uh, yeah, but in yeah, there, yeah. The, the, the there the relationship is reversed, right? You know, it's the it's the obverse. You have, um, you know, someone like uh, I don't know, Madonna. You know, I don't, I don't think if, if she if she had any songwriting participation, it was minimal compared to what was crafted for her. But does anyone here know any of the authors of her songs? No. Right. Yeah, right. But that was, so like the conceptual person, the, the, the great idea person, you know, remains anonymous, paid, but sort of like in the background. And then the sort of like talent or the performer, the person who you know, sings a song or makes a painting or whatever, you know, is the person who is, celebrated and given the credit for that creation right mm-hmm. uh, uh so it's it's sort of like a, it's the same div- the, the schism exists like this sort of divorce between the mind and the materialization but it's 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 flipped in terms of how we like yeah. so i feel like for everyone here though like i like I, I don't know if i can speak for all of you but i think from what i know you can like, speak for me okay anytime. okay okay <laughs> um you know knowing exactly what goes on in marshall's brain all the time <laughs> yes. i can say that you know, uh but 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 like the act of just touching so like i i don't think i could ever let anyone touch my paintings to the point where i, I wouldn't even want someone varnishing them like who's not me um like like i wouldn't want that like it's not you know sure. like and I don't think any of you guys would either I've um, had it happen before someone's varnished your work no 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 I've had someone paint on my paintings before really uh huh uh, so how do you feel about that boy it's intense I mean yeah th- this this will go uh, back to in school when like Stephen Asselli used to do it and made everyone's paintings better that, that doesn't count <laughs> 
No, it's a crazy experience. I mean, something like it, it, it happened right before a show and I needed some help and a friend came over and helped and it was sort of beautiful in a weird way. And it, it was like for two days and it was weird. The whole experience made me view my work much different. I will say that just kind of like talking with someone else about it and letting them like paint on it and it was just like someone you trust it was it was wild i keep thinking that i would like a little house elf to like there are parts of the paint i mean back when i used to paint on panel uh kind of the eight layers of gesso was like five layers of sanding it down and but and you know two layers of shellac on top of that and whatever i used to think i would want so you know if i ever got enough money i would want someone to do that but i actually i feel like i wouldn't i feel like i keep, you know i would keep wanting to t- you know just just do it all myself even the parts that i find boring mm-hmm. like there's nothing interesting about sanding down eight layers of gesso you know that um that, but but i still probably wouldn't w- want anyone touching it just, just yeah. because but it happened like you could see how it happens you have shows like I'm already way behind on one show and you could see how these people get into that you know um, just I like I think I would call them I'd just be like precious it's mine. <laughs> yeah I think it's you know it's, it's complicated like the history of uh, of uh, having help is well I mean having assistance is um, is the rule not not the exception historically you know, having, you know, people like, well, for example, I don't or know. Michelangelo. Like, I mean, I, I would totally. Michelangelo, not. He's the exce- he's an exception because he was a control, he's a control freak like Tina. But uh, he had and, assistance you know, on the system. So wanting yeah. to do yeah, everything. You, you know, for the like, record, I, I totally don't mind other people, like, helping me raise my child. So, like, I'm not sure why I'm so, you know, that. in fact, any of you, if anyone's listening and wants to come over and help me raise my child, you know. That. We're looking for babysitters. Um, I feel like please. several people in this room have already done that. <laughs> <laughs> Don't touch my painting. Raise my child. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, like, I feel like I'm not nearly as possessive about about that. <laughs> yeah, no. I think it's a it's a different. Yeah, I mean, like different personalities. I too like have trouble uh, relinquishing anything. I, I I can't think of an example other than a mercenary project where I. I've had anyone do anything on my stuff, but but I, that said, I don't I don't find it necessarily a bad thing. I think you know Bernini, who was a phenomenally talented artist, had most most of the sculptors, if not all the competent sculptors in Rome, at one point working for him. He just had so much work for the Vatican to do. So I mean, whatever. Yeah. I mean, it's just a business decision. But when it's somebody who intimately understands the craft that he or she is uh, presiding over and, and guiding, that's a, that's different than. You know, when you have uh, somebody who has, yeah. like, just zero clue. Uh, I also didn't really mind yeah. being an assistant. Like, I didn't mind doing someone sure. else's work and um, having, like... like well, yeah, I I mean, when it works well. Like, there's all... It, there, it can be a beautiful symphony. You can, you can have um, unexpected... It wasn't a symphony. I was just so disassociated from it that, like, like I... T- oh, I wanted, I, case, I wanted nothing yeah. to do with the results, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I remember those stories. That was, that was a little uh, different. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, but um, but but yeah. So you told me like well like you told me a few stories when we first met about sculptors who um, I, I, I guess the only reason we even had sculptors in that assistant show is probably because um, you told me who you know who was working for whom, and oh, yeah, um, I and and one of the sculptors who was kind of the master. Um, actually, I think stormed into the gallery and ended up, you know, yelling at the director or something. I can't remember if he fired the assistant afterwards or if the assistant just quit. 
Um, because really? it's an assistant show. It was an assistant show, wow. and the guy didn't want anyone know. Or Did like he used the, assistant. Uh, or how open? Like I think the kid was also pretty open about like what he was doing. Oh yeah, the, well, which might have been everything. Did he sign some non-disclosure? Um... I think that's the you know that's the crux of it, right? I, th- I feel like the more. But 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 there but there's videos of like this artist we're talking about. There's videos of him like you know working on this gigantic sculpture. Or the, and and Did he visited um, for a, really two, two I don't hours. know if we're talking about the same person. Um, but I, I feel I, like I, you might have shown them to me. But, um, well, we I'll tell you this. I mean, there, there, there's a there's there's one example that I've cited because it's extant. Uh, you know, uh, and I only like I wrote about it uh, for modern painters, um, but uh, where I was talking about as one example, Tom Otterness, um, who uh-huh. made those delightful little, mm. delightful but dark little figures. Eighth Avenue, Fourteenth yeah. Street, yeah. Yeah. 34th. Yeah, and I yeah I can't quite well, forgive him are, for having wonderful. what those are wonderful. He uh, he had assistants. So. Corey did Tai Chi with that guy. Yeah, that's <laughs> uh, serious. He's uh, actually uh, really good. Tai Chi. Hold up, hold August. up. Could, could we give it? Uh, what can you not forgive him for? Oh, he shot a dog as a performance piece when in the, oh, in the, in the 1970s. That's, that's Did he really? This is gonna go at all? Yeah, 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 yeah. And you Damn. know, I, I you know uh, he has not lived that down ever. I think recently, San Francisco Arts Council denied him a, um, or the museum out there denied a. A piece. Uh, they were gonna like. Uh, there was a, some some piece that was supposed to be, be installed on the west coast, and there was like some uh, uproar because this thing has haunted him. But that wow. was his his uh, his artwork was to kill this living That's being. Crazy. Uh, it's like anyway. Edison shocking an elephant. Oh man. <laughs> Um, I mean, there's that guy who would like shoot himself in the leg or something, but I thought hey, that's okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. I, I feel like that's yourself, you know, if it's your own yeah. body, you can you know, deface <laughs> yeah. it all, all you want in the name of art. It, yeah. Anyway, so so whatever. Um, but he he. Uh, the reason I thought about him was because um, <laughs> I saw it published somewhere. I forget it was online or in print. Uh, the the this uh, he had made his you know his figures that he's been doing for decades. He did a couple of them at, I think, the University of Rochester, uh, commissioned a couple of pieces. And so he did them on a, he had them done on a monumental scale in limestone. And uh, the thing that caught my attention was that he was quoted as saying, yes, I I, I loved pretending like I was Michelangelo working on this monumental figure, you know, however many feet high and, you know, uh, carving it away and thinking about the ancient Egyptians and what, whatever. It's like some stupid quote. I knew, I, re- I read it and I thought, oh, what, what's the likelihood that this guy who's made little clay figures and had them cast in bronze learned to sculpt stone and made this monumental thing on his own? And it just took maybe two pages of Google to find the actual like fabricator out in Indiana, it's like Bybee Stone Company, uh, you know, and the guy is standing there proudly next to the figures that he carved. And, but then you, then yeah. you, if you look up Tom Otterness and uh, Rochester, a video comes up on YouTube of him sitting there with like a little rasp, like sanding it, like he's like finishing off this okay, thing. That's, you, that's know? Not, you showed me someone else, but uh, what, 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 like, what a jackass, seriously. Not for hiring someone, but for talking about, you know, for, for, like for that video. Sure, yeah, I mean, like, that was just probably like an error in, in judgment. I mean, not, how, now, knowing that you can just kind of find everything with a click, but 
you know, but it's a it's a common you know sort of like it's pervasive um, that yeah, and that kind of like no, you know also, charlatanism how, but also is how could he possibly think it would not be found with a click? Like, but like, no one cares. Um, I mean, like I care, but like no one cares. Like really, like well, who, I care. Who, <laughs> no, I know, but like no I, one. I, I, I'm, I, I'm almost as appalled as that dog shooting. Yeah, but I mean, people don't fact check anymore. Right, right, though, who cares? Right, yeah. but I mean, even like Rodan, like Rodan, uh, you've seen Marvel pieces by him, but he uh, he didn't make any of those. I mean, I, I'd be surprised if he carved his name in them. But you know, because he he was a clay modeler. Sometimes there was a. a, a a demand for um, for marble, and I forget the reason if it was whether it was cheaper than actually doing it in bronze at the time. Uh, but basically, he had uh, a, a sort of a chief artisan who would carve his marbles from. I'm forgetting the guy's name now. It's Henri something, and uh, but uh, and that's just like historically documented and known, right? However, uh, if you Google Rodin in his studio on YouTube, or put into YouTube. There's a clip of him going like going into a studio and hacking away on a piece of marble, and it's just like a promotional video. It's all it's silent. It's black and white. And the great thing about it is that you know if you carve stone, you can see that he's holding the hammer completely improperly. <laughs> he's you know beating away on a he, he's using a point chisel and, and and he has the hammer turned sideways, which is like a way of uh, like sort of lessening the percussion. Or... Like you you do that? No, you would, no no you can do that, but you would. For, you would hold it. Sometimes you turn the axis of, of uh, the hammer perpendicular and hold it in your hand when you're doing really uh, refined chiseling to like lessen the blow, right? So you, you know if you're in a delicate area. But he's like swinging the hammer that way, <laughs> and with a point That's chisel, which so is the most funny. aggressive tool that you would be just doing everything differently. <laughs> would, would you agree that, you know, <clears throat> all is fair in um, art no, and war? I, I don't think so, by the way. I, um, because I, well, it's all who, whose fault is it, right? Like, these sure. art, as an artist, you're going to do whatever you want. You can do whatever you want. Like, no, as I, your, I mean, look, look, you I, can I, lie like, as I much as you why, want. I know why people want to lie about this, because it's so much, it like is so much cooler to be like, I was up on... You know, like you know, like like Michelangelo is up on top of this, you know, gigantic sculpture, like chipping away at it, rather than I hired some guy in Indiana to do it. I mean, like we know why they're lying, but I, yeah. I, I actually don't think it's okay. I, well, I, like, I think it's not okay. Like well, I, I, think, I, yeah. I'm just saying, like you either yeah, have I don't to think embrace. Like, you either have to embrace. You have to embrace the the farm out, right? Like a coons, or you got to go in the other direction and try to take some credit for it. Because I think that the historical baggage. Uh, is is too great, uh, and and also just all the other cultural value that we have, that uh, you know esteems people who kind of accomplish things, like whether it's like you know running that race fast or like you know composing the song or do, executing that ballet perfectly or writing that great book. I mean, like it's true that we 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 still sort of like you know fetishize or you know uh, the, the the accomplishment. So either you have to sort of like tap into that as a lot of people misleadingly do you know, by maintaining some kind of opacity if they haven't exactly made the work. Or you have to go in the other direction, I think, and be completely transparent and just say, like, yeah, like, I mean, making making this work is not part of my process. In fact, I pay other people to do it. Or, like, I just don't, I don't uh, have a need to do it because perhaps, like, for example, I know artists who have some stone carving in their work 
but they make no pretenses to having uh, carved it. And it's part of like a larger assemblage or an installation that they're doing. And like if I, Steve Shaheen, wanted to make an installation that had an aluminum casting in it, I'm not going to go learn how to do that in a foundry if I need to have a specific object, let's say it's part of an assemblage, right? And so I think there are, there's a difference between that and then creating an, ice, an isolated object in a medium, let's call it let's stone in this example, because that's what I know about. If you're creating like a pedestal piece that is, you know, in stone, in stone and part of the veneration of that, and you know that the market awe of that uh, and the audience attraction to it is, is related to this lingering sort of cultural uh, understanding that that was, that, that you, that that object was made by hand, that there was some like genius involved and some craft involved or, in that, right? some human like a human that you know is the one that like is in the video at least you know? sure <laughs> the same human right um, and, and it's also like the artist touch too like there's like there's still like this sort of like essentialism that we that we have like psychologically it's invested in us like so for example um like the notion of like you know uh you know the, the, the famous person's article of clothing or sh- shaking your hand oh i'm not going to wash my hand now like that artist touch even titian mm-hmm. titian had they had a dispute with uh, i forget the name of the town uh, where they claimed that you know he, he, he performed a commission for them and they received the painting and they're like this is not enough of Titian's hand it's too much of his assistance and so they had to like there was some, some dispute and I think they actually renegotiated the price you know based on less of Titian's actual hand in it you know yeah, wow. like what if there's no you know like like I feel but, like but that's still like that's still less but I feel like if there's no hand people should know there's, well you know, also like who's that? at fault is it the gallery that that's marketing it. Falsely, or is it the artist? Every, everyone. Is it, it's both. Every, everyone. It's uh. everyone, right? Well, sometimes all, all I'm saying is that there's still a cultural value on that sort of like uh, primary uh, touch by the, you know, if, if Bruce Springsteen's uh, guitar that he's been playing with and it's like soaked with sweat and scratched up goes up for auction, as opposed to a, a brand new replica of his guitar that he signed, which one's going to go for more, right? We yeah. still, we still like culturally or as humans or whatever, there's lots of ways to look at it. We, 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 we do invest value in that sort of, you know, for example, like a, a, the sketch of Leonardo da Vinci versus a painting based on his sketch, which is much more magnificent technically, but done by his assistants, which one's going to cost more, right? Uh-huh. You know, we, sure. we, we, we still have that value culturally. So I think what happens is that like artists, even who don't make their work, uh, they still want to sort of like, tap into that or at least the market wants to construct that we talked about that guy at Gagosian who's that painter who just like does the silk screening and uh but uh, uh and and paints on top of it yeah has assistance assistance paints on oh yeah oh, oh yeah right. has assistance god uh who, who is, is that that's another jackass uh, I don't know I didn't didn't save enough uh, like neurons for him but he basically uh, uh, has you know, the right the write up on the Gagosian page is like how he like you know uses uh, I, I, you know, old I've, master techniques. I've, you know, I've to talked <laughs> to that guy, and um, I've talked to that guy like, and you can see like the edge of his painting, which is just a printout. You know, it, it is just like a printed photograph. Oh, I remember you um, about that, yeah, yeah, so I talked to him at the opening, and it wasn't even the opening. It was um, like you know he because he's he's the kind of jackass that hangs out his own show answering questions for like the rest of the months. Okay, so it's Gagosian. He's also like very good looking and very personable. 
but I asked him how he paints and you know he, he thought I was, in, was still in art school and he was like you know well do you know anything about like Venetian painting techniques which is probably the one thing I actually do know a whole bunch about but he's like well I basically I, I do it just like that and I was like well could you tell me just describe like the process and like and, and I mean he's super nice Right, like he's very, very, you know, like 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 he's just being like he's like well first I have like you know like a dark like like whatever it is like a Venetian you know like like a dark red ground and then I go like go in with the underpainting and like you can see like huge blotches of pixels like under a very very thin layer of paint and 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 I and this person this this very good looking educated like like man is just looking at me he's lying like like you know, like he's just lying and and that's the part that I found like and and you know we're talking and nothing that's coming out of his mouth is true um so i asked one of the gagosian girls a little bit later like how he does it and she goes on about venetian painting techniques and that was back when i was like younger and angrier i i, I guess i like you know have less energy to be angry about this stuff now but but she you know she like she and i was like look it's it's on top of a photograph and she basically says like we can't comment uh, you know, like we can't, and I was like, look, it's like, 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 look at the edge of this. There's like a photograph under this, you know, yeah. and like, look at this. There's like two inches where there's just no paint. There's just just a bunch of like pixels. It's a printed photograph, and she basically, I mean, like, like she's like, look, I, I'm sorry, like I work here, like we can't talk about this. So they know, like it's not like a Goshen doesn't know, yeah. like like they know the people that work for them know, they have like some sort of speech to cover it. Um, but there's already like collectors involved in that. They've bought it. It's fairly it's fortified. It's already in the like, Goshen. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Like even if the Appar- collectors apparently know. Apparently I do. <laughs> no, I'm saying you do, but I'm saying the greater art world is is but it the, concerned with that? You, you know, but yep. what is the greater art world? And I feel like a lot of people would, you know, I, I like like what, what, when I would tell people who are not in the art world about this, they're like, that's terrible. Um, sure, it's like it's like. Do you guys remember Millie Vanilli? Sure. <laughs> I mean, again, like it, it's it, yeah. I mean, uh, what is you're right. Like it, is, it, it, it doesn't it? matter, and in a way, it's the only thing that matters, right? Yeah. Totally, I saw a, totally. I saw a meme uh, on Facebook. Somebody put up this like: curators are the new artists, collectors are the new curators, socialists are the new theorists. Artists still think it's about them. <laughs> yeah, uh, who's uh, who's yeah. Millie Vanilli? Millie what? Vanilli was a. They, uh, I like didn't grow. You know, I didn't spend my childhood here. This sounds like an '80s reference. It is. It was, it was in, is. and they got called maybe around uh, 1990. I forget. They were singing on like VMAs or whatever, and the tape was skipping, and so it's like it's this song, "Please Don't Go, Girl," and it kept like skipping, and they were trying to manage it, but it was clear that they weren't doing the singing. Oh, the poor bastards! <laughs> but I don't think I think it turned out that they weren't. They, they didn't sing at all, right? Like they even didn't on the sing recordings, at all. they Not were just all. a couple pretty boys who had been selected for uh, the <laughs> role. Like you perfect. know. Analogies for the, uh, for, yeah, for, for the entire art world. Uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, and um, in any case, I would, like so, so it, matters, it, it matters to some people, including I think all of the ones in that room. Uh, look, like, nobody wants to listen to us. That's <laughs> <laughs> in fact, we just lost half our listeners yeah. by going on about how how much this matters. No, well, here's the thing. Like, I mean, like uh, I don't know. Tell me who's who's like the the hotshot painter. Of, oh, sorry, the the let's say the uh, the most prominent sculptor um, of the 18th century. It's called sculpting. <laughs> Tumbleweed. <laughs> no, right? no, I know it. I'm just waiting to see if you guys do. <laughs> I, 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 I don't. No, I mean, like, you know, I, I, the, the, I, I don't know it. I, 
the, the, the hotshot salon winners of the 19th century in Paris are the subject of obscure PhD dissertations. I mean, uh-huh. like, we, we have no idea how any of this stuff today will shake out over time. We have Gagosian or Coons or whatever. I mean, um, I, I'm, you know, who knows? Like, maybe they'll be in art history books. They could be uh, historical um, footnotes. I hope, I hope they're completely forgotten. I hope they don't well, make it into the footnotes, actually. Well, I get, but sure. I mean, like, you know. Like, a footnote is still, like, you know, in print. and then. Right, but I'm saying, like, regardless of our sentiments, like, how we feel about it, the point is that, it, it, like, none of it, none of it matters. Like, even if it does matter for the market. In terms of, like, people making art, you just, just you know, make make what you like you know if you want some kind of short-term gain or like attention now in the moment then do whatever you have to do to get they get to get that but if the passion is not driving it then there, there's no guarantee the point is that there's no guarantee of anything uh you know you can die uh penniless and uh miserable like vincent van gogh and you know uh your stuff's worth a zillion dollars later and then his contemporary bougarot right who was uh-huh. the hot shot of the day and couldn't you know, had a long uh, list of uh, commissions that he couldn't finish. You can still buy things of his in the tens of thousands of dollars. Um, uh, yeah. So, um, uh-huh. so I was um, I, I was reading something about this Saturday, and uh, apparently the people that kind of you know like um, like sometimes the canon gets created in a, in a reasonably random way, just just by random exposure. The people we think of as kind of the impre- impressionist canon, uh, you know, like 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 Monet, Manet, Van Gogh, you know, whatever it is, yeah, like sure. three, three more. They were all I think it, it, one of them was a banker. And he collected the work. I, I can't remember if it was. It wasn't Pizarro, Pizarro but um, in any case, he collected the work of the other guys. And when he died, um, he bequeathed his collection to, I think, like the French National Institute, or you know, like like some some museum in Paris who didn't want to take it because at that point the Impressionists were like not very highly regarded. But he haggled and he had a lot of money, so he won. And they took his collection. Um, and so those guys got the exposure, basically the people mm-hmm. in his collection, which were the ones that he was friends with. So, you know, he was friends with, with Manet, and he was, you know, that. Sure. Um, yeah, for sure. He, he knew Van Gogh, and those are the ones we think of as the canon because they had, whenever people would visit the museum, that's what they would see because the museum was forced to take it. Well, Botticelli and Raphael were in obscurity for centuries. I mean, like, so, I mean, actually this uh, psychologist... Mihaly, Chixin Mihaly, who uh, coined the term uh, creative flow. Uh, he, he's, his whole career in psychology is about understanding creati- you know, creativity in people. Um, he talks about how Raphael technically is not, a, all of a sudden just like not a creative person or not a creative genius or whatever you want to call it for a couple of hundred years. And like uh, all of a sudden he is. Now he was for the Pope a long time ago and then now he is again. But it all is uh, rather... Um, uh, 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 capricious, right? Um, Botticelli is like on every, uh, um, you know, whatever. Postcard. I'll just say postcard or like every souvenir, you know, in an Italian uh, um, sort of uh, um, magazine store. So, but, um, so actually, um, because I feel like it's nearing midnight, and uh, yeah, yeah, I've got the three a.m. wake up call. How, like, but like back, back to a question Ton asked, to like rephrase a little differently. But like, how would you like to be remembered? You know, like, like if let's say in three hundred years, Stephen Shaheen is remembered in some way, 
what, what is that way? Like, is it for something? Is it going to be did? a video of you chipping at some stone? The first time you see this sculpture, you chip out a little photo op. You know, as, like the guy that made the amazing sculpture, or just uh, you know the patriarch of a huge family with you know eighteen grandchildren, like like, you know, that, <laughs> like like in some ideal world in three hundred years, like like what's your footnote, or like how you know, or what's your chapter? The... Huh. <laughs> Okay, well, that was apparently yeah, yeah, no, yeah, no, I'm sorry. That's apparently I, I, you a know, stupid question. I'm sorry. No, no, no. <laughs> I, I, uh, I don't know. I, I honestly am. I don't know if it's. I don't want to sound. I don't want to sound overly pessimistic or, or cynical about it. But I just don't. I don't. I can't imagine having you know having produced anything of such consequence that I would be remembered. I just don't think about that. You know what I mean? Uh, right. Now I don't have that kind of, um, uh, and not that I don't have that kind of ambition to create things, but I don't have an ambition for a, a legacy in that sense. I can't imagine what I'm doing changing the course of art or sculpture. Maybe it's like being the, the super saturation that we were talking about earlier. But about could be, I don't know, know if there it, if it there could is any, but something really really cool. I don't know. I made things. I was a good. Uh, yeah, I made things. That's, that's like I think that's all I would really I, like. Like like you know here here was Dina Brodsky and she made stuff her whole life and that's that's probably she's happy. Yeah, because she made stuff. Right? Yeah, but I think it's kind of a pure impulse to not think about any of that and just follow an impulse to create things. You know, it feels reverse engineered in a way to think how you want to be perceived later on and then I don't know just following your muse right yeah I don't know I mean you hear stories about I mean the, the, I don't know if like a, who, who would be an example of this I don't know if it's like a pick like a Steve Jobs or somebody who wants is determined to do something that's like you know culture shifting or whatever and achieves that I don't know in my very small esoteric world and practice you know uh, that's not a concern of mine, but here, 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 um, it's hard enough just to try to make something that you're happy with, right? Maybe this is my legacy. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for listening to the Arc Rhyme podcast. Rate and review us on Apple Podcast. Also, we're on Instagram at ArtGrimePodcast. You can leave comments on the thread or DM us there. We usually see them. Also, Facebook, we're at ArtGrimePodcast. You can uh, leave comments, future questions for our guests and such there. Also, we're on our website is www.ArtGrimePodcast.com. Yeah, and... Um Definitely go there for the beautiful images that we post um, of the artist and the copious notes that I create so that you can enjoy um, all the references that they mentioned during the interview. And uh, don't be shy to 
donate us some, you know, money so we could buy some really good booze for the guests. And pay Misha. And pay Misha to do the editing because I'm just lazy now. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye.